0: Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for LikeVille comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in LikeVille, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash also sponsoring the podcast is GoodMix. GoodMix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of GoodMix at Amazon and at GoodMixFoods.com by using the code LIKEFIL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefilpodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Like Soul podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I'm going to be talking with my friend Jason McDonald about Thomas Sowell, a very controversial uh, intellectual economist. Uh, Welcome, Jason. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi. I'm doing very well. So maybe you can sort of just, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Thomas Sowell, maybe you can sort of just tell us a little bit Uh, about uh, Thomas Sowell.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, he was born in uh, in the Carolinas a long, long time ago. He's very old and he, his parents were extremely poor. His father died before he was uh, born, I believe. And he had to be adopted by some relatives in New York where he grew up in Harlem. And uh, he went to good schools there. He was fortunate. He's often, he often says the schooling he got in New York in the, in the I guess, the 30s and 40s was better than a lot of the American schools are doing now. I don't know if that's true or not, but he says that. Um, and he had a kind of a roundabout upbringing. He quit school and then he, you know, he joined the army and he worked and did a bunch of things and he ended up going back. To university, I believe to, he got into Harvard and then he moved on from there and he ended up at the University of Chicago, which uh, anyone who knows anything about that school will know you know it's it's a uh let's call it a libertarian or classical liberal orientation in its economic school Milton Friedman, so that was a life changing experience for him that oriented him. He, he was a Marxist at that point, which uh, might surprise a lot of people, I think, although maybe not so many. A lot of these uh, these right-wing people, I think they started out as Marxists. So that's a pretty common thing. Anyway, and then he went on and he got, a, I'm not sure, I believe, graduate work in economics, and he wrote lots of books on economics, and he's written about other things, and he's dabbled in all kinds of different fields, a uh, variety of different things, so... Uh, I don't know if that.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good. I mean, just to respond to one thing you said there, the about the education system in the nineteen thirties and forties, that's actually very well documented. That he's it was better in many different in many respects. There's actually a really good overview of this. The best one I've seen is in Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers. He talks about um, how the he talks about like the how much demographic troughs and like hills and valleys how much those affect your uh, future success in life so he says for instance the best time to be in the public school system especially in a place like New York um, was in the 1930s because you had you had just this perfect storm of awesome so you had first of all you had lots of Um, highly intelligent uh, women especially, but not just women, uh, minorities, various other people who were um, kept out of a lot of professions, which of course sucked for them uh, in many ways because it limited their possibilities. But it was great for students because it meant that you had all of these uh, you know these of these Jewish women, black women, you know all also, also who basically couldn't go into medicine, the law, and many other fields, but they could get into education, and so you had uh these it's sort of similar to what we had here in Montreal with Concordia when it was Sir George Williams, so because McGill had Jewish quotas and had limitations on. Um, certain on uh, certain people getting into programs and into the university itself, you had this all sorts of super brilliant, uh, especially Jews like went to Sir George Williams because they couldn't get in anywhere else. And then you had professors at Sir George Williams, a whole bunch of them who um, were people who had been blacklisted during the Red Scare and during the uh, you know the early the second Red Scare so they had to leave the united states because they couldn't get they were basically you know victims of what we now call cancel culture and yeah. they came up here and a whole bunch of them so you had uh you had at public schools you know throughout north america and at universities you had people teaching at these places and people going to them who were what we would now see as being incredibly overqualified you know. you'd have like i mean you look at like some of the teachers that were teaching public school in new york city in the 1930s these are like women with phds in you know from top universities but they couldn't get a job anywhere in That's higher education and so if you and then combined with that you had what's a demographic trough So the birth rate went dramatically down during the great depression So if you were one of the kids that went into public schools during that period, you got incredibly like overqualified teachers who were amazing, who those teachers largely don't exist now in public education because they can go elsewhere and make much more money and have better status. Right. Um, And then you had incredibly great teachers and you had really small class sizes. So the class sizes At a public school in New York City, uh, because those were all unionized workers, it's not as if you could just like get rid of half of them when um, populations go down. So they were still, you still had these amazing, super great teachers and you had class sizes that were a third to a half what they normally want, which means like little Thomas Sowell and other people like him got massive amounts of one-on-one attention. Um, from teachers in a way that uh, kids in the, you know, 1920s or kids in the 1950s with the baby boom uh, did not, right? So this, and and Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, it's no accident that we just get this amazing flowering of intellectual talent uh, from Thomas Sowell's generation.
1: Does he he mention Sowell specifically, or is it just a general, like I'm wondering who somebody's other, you know, luminaries are, I, I'm sure. Oh,
0: he he goes through, if you go in the... Uh, I've read that book, in, and I just don't remember that part. To, you remember the chapter where he talks about, and it's been years since I've read the book, but you, you know the chapter where he talks about that, that uh, like Jewish lawyer who would take all the oh, cases yeah, that nobody yeah. else would do? It's in, <laughs> that, it's in, it's in yeah. that chapter.
1: Yeah. It's in that That's
0: chapter true. where he says how he was part of this generation of young people who came of age in New York city, going to the public schools at a point where, uh, it was just, you know, an amazing time to be going to a public school. It's so many of those things are, are just not, um, yeah. are just not present anymore. Like now, you know, when I've taught, when I've taught at, um, university classes, as a general rule, the education students, are the absolute worst students in the class, right? So that's you're getting like, you know, if, if in a class of 120 students, if there's you know 15 students that fail, the typical thing is like 12 of them are from the education department, yeah. and it, which is so depressing as a parent when you're <laughs> you're like, oh my god, this is who's going to be teaching our young people? But in the past, that was not the case. Uh, and actually, Alan Bloom talks about this in the closing of the American Mind quite a bit. That um, obviously shutting people like Jews and women and stuff like that, shutting people out of uh, you know higher education and and various professions, that was unjust and it was wrong. And I'm glad that we fixed it. However, it was also even, costly. Yeah, it was well, expensive. well yeah. it's just this weird. It's just this weird <laughs> yeah. situation where sometimes. People benefit from injustice. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Like yeah. it's ugly, you know. It's
1: ugly, but um they you, you, c- you could you could look at that in multiple ways. I mean, it's possible that that also cost us some amazing inventions too. Like we don't, you know, those people who went. I mean, you know, we don't know what didn't happen. We can't, right? So maybe some of those teachers who were teaching little Thomas Soul and helping him become a great person, maybe they could have you know, invented something. It's, it's very difficult to know, right? Oh, I think that's almost definitely true. I mean,
0: um, this was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, his whole idea of, um, I, I love his idea of the talented tense, where he has that, uh, where he said that every time you exclude groups from, uh, from opportunities, from education, from going into you, he, he said, for argument's sake, uh, we should assume that within every group, there is like uh what he calls the talented tenth right and if you if you basically close yourself off to entire like groups and say like okay they're not allowed to this then you are excluding that talented tenth and you're you're reducing the amount of talent that your community could draw upon for yeah. new ideas and business and military stuff and science and you know you name it arts like you're you're Closing off those possibilities by excluding those people. So, yeah, no, definitely. There's another famous
1: case. I'm sure you've heard of him, of a a guy who was rejected by McGill. Forget his name now, but he went to Queens in Ontario and he became this famous scientist and he donated all of his art. He became this big art collector. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he did it like he openly said, like you know McGill rejected me, right? You know, and anyway, (laughs) it's a side note that uh, kind of a sad comment on what you're talking about there. You know,
0: yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, I I find um, Thomas Sowell he's an incredibly controversial figure for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I think part of he he's annoying to a lot of people on the left um big time um because i think partially partially it's just because he's he's an african american guy who
1: yeah you is, know can i just say something quickly about that yeah 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 yeah, yeah shoot sure. there's sort of a story of how i i got to know his work um i you know after the 2008 financial crisis i um, I wasn't affected by it. I had a job at that point, where I work. I'm a, I'm a professor and a teacher, and uh, anyway, but I was fascinated. You know, this thing had happened, and I was like, "What happened?" So I started going down these rabbit holes on the internet and finding. and I stumbled upon this guy called Russ Roberts, who you may know about. He's an economist. Um, he's, nope. His bill now, yeah, he's really an amazing interviewer. I sort of base, uh, I sort of try and model myself to try and be like Russ Roberts. He's kind of like the opposite of me. He's very calm and relaxed and really he's really (laughs) good at disagreeing with people. And that's like a problem I have. So I sort of, anyway, so I, I, you know, I've been listening to him for, you know, 12 years or whatever. And on one of his shows, he had Thomas Sowell. And this was like maybe five, six years ago when Sowell wasn't as well known. He seems to be getting better known now. It appears to me that could be an illusion, just my selective bias of who I'm with. But anyway, so I listened to the interview. I was like, wow, this guy sounds really smart. So I got one of his books and I read it and I was just completely sucked right into it. I couldn't put it down. And then I got another one. And then I was partway through the second or third book. And he was talking about all these like African-American schools and all this stuff about the education and and I was like, well, you know, wow, maybe this guy's black, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, heard of me, right? And then I went and looked at him and I was like, yeah, the guy is black, because I would heard him on an audio thing. And I thought, in some senses, it sounds kind of chintzy to say. I think some people might find that, you know, um, I don't know. Like, I told it to a friend of mine, and she was sort of like, well, that's kind of, you know, weird. But... I think it's an amazing statement of just the, the amazing rigor of his work that it doesn't, you know, imagine re- reading, you know, I don't know, just pick your great other intellectual right now, Ibram X. Kennedy or, you know, something like that. You know, how could you read them without not knowing that, right? It's kind of, you know, and with soul, it's kind of this incidental fact, his work it stands on its own and his being black is just something on the side. So I don't really understand why people are so put off by that is it just perhaps you know maybe he's on the right wing or something i don't you know well
0: i think people like him people like him always uh always are at least at least initially seem like um a challenge to various kinds of essentialism So if you say that like the the importance of the identity of the person speaking is it decides very much like whether or not you should listen to this or not, uh, and if you believe in the whole idea of like um, epistemic privilege that certain people, by virtue of their um, of their experience, have access to to knowledge that other people do not. If you if you buy into all of that, the holy that
1: idea, the holy, sainted, you know, race or something, right, something like that.
0: Well, it, it could be. It's, it's mainly, I mean, he talks about the vision of the anointed. That's a different thing. But if you believe that uh, that certain people, that, that that two plus two is not equal to four, if certain people say it, um, and if some people say that two plus two is equal to five, and they're the right people, then, well, we have to revise things. It's five notes, because, because these people who are authoritative sources have have said that it's this and you need to you know hashtag believe women hashtag you know shut up and listen hashtag like yours if you buy into that whole um situation then that that worldview then people like Thomas Sowell are a problem. You know, in the same way that Margaret Thatcher was a problem for uh, for some some feminists when I was a kid. They would I remember asking a teacher once like who talked about how the world would be a better place if it was ruled by women. And I brought up, I said, well, what about Margaret Thatcher? She's like starting wars and she seems to be pretty. And she said, Oh, she's not a real woman. Yeah. yeah. And so you can say, well, Thomas Sowell is not a real black man. Or you can say like, uh, you, you can basically say anybody who, who doesn't fit into your, um your categorization of what like uh, what a, a Jewish person is supposed to believe like oh you don't totally support israel so you're a self-hating jew or you don't like support my political program as a african american man while well, you're an uncle tom or you're like I mean, there's always like there's ways like oh you have internalized misogyny and that's why you got <laughs> into feminism
1: Don't you think it's kind of racist to do this? Like the black example, you're not, I mean, that seems racist to me. That seems like you're taking his race and you're using it against him. Right. Like maybe I'm misunderstanding what racism is or something, but it just is. I don't know. I I I mean, the funniest, the funniest example of this I I've seen,
0: you know, by far is, I don't know if you remember, um, Douglas Murray, in his book, The The Madness of Crowds, he tells this, he has this hilarious, I I actually wrote it down because I was like, I got to mention this to Jason when we're talking, but uh, he says, um, uh, The London School of Economics is, as it boasts of itself, one of the world's leading universities of the social sciences. With an international intake and a global reach, uh, LSE has always put engagement with the wider world at the heart of its mission, Over at its LSE Review of Books page in May 2012, a review appeared of a new book by Thomas Sowell, Intellectuals and Society, uh, had come out two years earlier. But in the world of academia, intellectual drive-by shootings often happen at a more leisurely pace than the rest of society. The reviewer, Aidan Byrne, was the senior lecturer in English and Media and Cultural Studies at Wolverhampton University. In this capacity, his byline informed us, he specializes in masculinity in blah, 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 it goes on. Um, uh, For his part, Byrne was unimpressed by the highly partisan nature of Sowell's book. And so two years after Sowell's book had been published, Byrne took aim and attempted to fire. From his opening line, he warned that intellectuals in society consists of a series of outdated and sometimes dishonest shots at Sowell's political enemies. Among other charges included in Byrne's review was a claim that one line in Sowell's book echoed the concerns of the Tea Party and constituted a thinly disguised attack on racial integration. An even odder allegation against Sowell came when Byrne warned readers that Sowell's references to racial issues constituted little more than disordered and disturbing dog whistles. In a similar fashion, Sowell's arguments about the legacies of the past were also a coded intervention. A warming to his theme, Byrne explained, to him, Soul, slavery's cultural legacy means that it shouldn't be considered a moral problem, nor should amelioration be attempted. Uh, he goes on and then the money shot is, he says, well, it's it's easy for a rich man, white man like Soul, to say these things. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just, I mean, I remember when I, when that <laughs> review, people were sharing it like, crazy on, like, Facebook and Twitter. So and he They just looked so ridiculous, right? Like, the, but the, and then they were incredibly embarrassed. Could, could we say
1: that's, out. like, white-splaining? I don't know. Is that something? Like, I, I, I guess.
0: I mean, but it just, it points out, and, I, you know, you and I have both seen this on Facebook, like, numerous times where there'll be a debate happening about something, And somebody will say, well, you know, it's interesting to note how the lack of diversity on this Facebook thread. And then, you know, somebody will chime up. This happens like so often. They'll either chime up and say, "Um, actually, I'm, you know, I'm South Asian or I'm East Asian or I'm, you know, African Canadian or I'm from the Caribbean or I'm from South America or, or I'm Mohawk, actually. And people will chime in and say, like, no, that's actually not true. And then you see exactly the same thing where they right? say, so, "Well, clearly you're you're not a real <laughs> yeah yeah."
1: That's the I mean, that's the it, instance, right? I mean, it it sort of seems like there's two ways you can view the issue of race, right? You can view it in that determinative way, or you can take the Martin Luther King way, you know, which which is to say that you know don't judge a person by the race. In other words, the race should not be something that's that that important, right? So I think that. So that's clearly what he's, you know, his his being black is just like it's like me being white. It's not, I don't know, it's it's not something that's important. Like there are so many other things about me that would rate higher than my my ethnic racial background, you know, in terms of how I view myself, right? Anglophone, Montreal, or Canadian, Quebec or whatever, you know, I could just go down on a whole list of things that, you know, but anyway. I mean, he is. He is. I've definitely
0: I've learned a lot from Soul, but I I can't help but wonder. You know, there are there are certain people who gain prominence yeah. in in circles, and they gain prominence for for reasons that are you know have more to do than just like their thought. And I, I you know, in the same way that you'll see like the um, You'll see like these they have these horrible uh, conferences usually in Iran where they're like conferences for Holocaust deniers, right? And they'll get together from all over the world and you'll always see like some
1: Israeli or something. Exactly. They'll always bring in
0: some like like some Orthodox Jews and they'll make sure to have them like up on the stage. In in the photo ops. Like they want (laughs) them and you know the Soviet Union did the same thing with people like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and where they would you know, find like some people who, uh, it, it's just such a trope. Like you, you see, once you start to see this pattern, it, it can become a little bit, so, and by, by a little bit, I mean a lot really tedious, where they'll, a very common trope in any, if you're looking at like Jezebel or or any, any kind of like, uh, news outlet or organization that has a an axe to grind they'll have what they call what i call this sort of the salt paul stories the you know, testimonials from people that basically sound like a, a non-musical version of the hymn amazing grace it's like i once was blind but now i see so if you go to right-wing sources you'll find people saying oh i was once a marxist and progressive, but I saw the light. You know, I've and, I've and then on the other side, you'll see people, if you want to read, you know, democracy now, and it's they'll have people saying, I was once a free market libertarian, but I saw the light, you know, and and then, like, everybody has these narratives. Right. And I wonder, I, I can't help but suspect that Thomas Sowell's success um, is to some extent a function of the fact that he was... A convenient, uh, convenient um, spokesman for,
1: for a bunch yeah. of ideas. Do you and know I, what I mean? I, yeah, I totally understand. I mean that that so there's probably you could divide. You know, there are millions of people who are reading his work, right? And so, you know, th- there must be a subset who are secret racists, is what the charge would be, right? So there's a subset of people who. They're they're reading his work and they don't really respect him as a person as much as they would if it was a, or to another person who they might love, right? They don't have any black friends and they're like true racists or something, but they're using him as a, you know, how much of his popularity is due to that? I, I don't know. Does it matter that much? I mean, does that affect the quality of his work? Do you think that he's affected by that and he's responded because he's gotten more popular yeah. And that's affected his work negatively. Like, I don't think that is necessarily true. I, although it could be, I mean, I'm not him, you know, I, I don't think that. Yeah. I think he has a kind of a rigor and intellectual honesty. He he is a right-wing person, him. I, I actually don't agree with him on some of his right-wing things. You know, he's kind of, um, you know, some of this sort of abortion, it sounds like he, I'm pro-choice, for example. Right. And he's, you know, he seems to be more on the other side, but you know, okay. Is that, because he is trying to please the tea party people who are a bunch of old white guys or something, or is that just really what he believes? Right. Oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I don't,
0: I seriously doubt that I would never accuse him of like sort of tailoring his views to, you know, singing for whatever Piper is playing the, you know, the song. I I don't think he's doing anything like that. I'm just saying that people, people often, I had a, you know, friend of mine who's actually been on the podcast uh um, before and uh he's he was really he's kind of he's kind of been a little bit disillusioned with libertarianism in the last couple of years but he was hardcore like he went to the libertarian camps <laughs> in california he went to the the objectivist like and rand groups like he was practically like cult member level, like commitment to this stuff. Like he he actually went to training camps, like red diaper baby camps, except for, for libertarians and Randians and stuff like that. But, and he said, you know, it was interesting because he'd go to these things and like it was just every single libertarian conference he went to was overwhelmingly and by overwhelmingly, like we're talking he said, minimum eighty percent, sometimes as much as ninety-five percent, uh, was basically like white guys, right? right. <laughs> white white and, and male, like also male. White and male and male. Yeah. And male, and male. Yeah. White and male. Uh-huh. And he said, and they, you know, there was, it was, you know, very clearly what was kind of an ideology that appealed primarily to, uh, to that demographic. But you would always have like a sprinkling of uh, you know some like asians <laughs> some, like, some like latinos some women and he said you know but what was amazing is that like on the panel for the photo ops and stuff like that they would always as much right. as possible right. they, and, and he the know, black guy knowing yeah. knowing knowing practically nobody at these things because he was asian they would ask him to come up for right. the just like oh yeah we want to like make it look like it's a much more diverse group than it actually is. Right. So I wonder if to what extent
1: uh, well, somebody like he, Thomas Sowell like, benefited from he that. May, so, he may have, he may have. I mean, does that matter? I mean, is that, is that something like, is, I'm just trying to figure out why that would be something that would be important. You know what I mean? Like, is it, I, you know, I mean, maybe it's, is it distasteful? It sounds a little bit sort of sleazy to me you know if especially if they're being used right yeah um, what are the implications for the wider impact of soul's work um I, I i don't know that's uh, like are there any maybe there are not does it matter i i don't know i'm i'm just I,
0: it doesn't matter to me very much uh if at all actually
1: it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, matter to me at all actually. yeah I but don't, you know like that uh, for me but i mean maybe for other people there's some sort of a reason why we should be suspicious of him or something i i, I don't know and there might be a reasonable reason for that too like i that, that I, I can't see you know maybe you could tell me what it is right yeah
0: well, there's, I mean, there's, I guess it depends. Like if there's, um, I would, I would sort of say that there's definitely some overlap, but as a general rule, I would say that when it comes to, let's say books, there's sort of two categories of, of books, right? There's, there's one which, uh, where like your personal experience is extremely important to, um, to whether I should take this seriously or not. So if somebody writes a book, like an adventure book, like for instance, you know, our friend, uh, Mike, right. Like Mike, Mike Spencer bone. Yeah, no, Mike, Getter. uh, Mike Spencer bone who w- oh, right. w- wrote, uh, the world's most traveled man. It's a fantastic book. It's he's, uh, he's been on the podcast and he's, he's traveled to every country on earth since 2000. And wow. even like like ones that are incredibly hard to get into. He's been to like war-torn countries like while he was in Iraq during the war, <laughs> backpacking around. <Wow. laughs> yeah, he's, so his his book is absolutely fascinating because he's just telling you about all these wild, crazy experiences that he's had all over the world recently. You know, since right. 2000. Right. Now, if I found out that... Um, it was all bullshit. it was all a hoax that he actually like has been living in Calgary in his mom's basement this whole time, and I know my listening to this, so like if I found out it was all bullshit and he just made it up, that would totally change right. my view because his book is based on his experiences, his adventures right. Right. but if if somebody writes a book like Conflict of Visions or you know like it, it, very the books that thomas soul has has written they're books of ideas like, and they stand or fall on their own merit. It doesn't really matter very much who he is. Like, I don't feel like his identity. uh, If I found out that Thomas Sowell was actually like a, like a, (laughs) <laughs> I, don't know. If I, any, or I don't know. he was like actually yeah. like a like a, a jewish woman who was like right. dressing right. dressing up like a black man because like <laughs> she has like some some sort of rachel Do- dolezal right smushed right. with uh i don't know jenner like whatever Caitlyn jenner like i don't know if i found out that he was his identity was different than he presented to people and this was only found out after his death let's say it wouldn't change my readings of his books
1: very much. Not not many of them. I was going to say there are some part, as I said, I, I stumbled upon, I think it was uh, the Black Rednecks and White Liberals. That was the second or third book. And in that book, he talks a lot about education for African-Americans and so on. And it turns out that is something that is at least connected to his own experience to some extent, right? Like he, has, yeah, right. So I suppose you could take some of his work and sort of siphon it off to maybe like 10% of it, let's say, and the rest of it would all just be ideas or even less than 10% really.
0: Yeah. Well, I think his, his most where he, you know, and I was saying this, um, you know, talking to some friends the other day, like where, first of all, of all of his books, I think the one that they were trashing in that uh, review that went viral, because it's you know, well, as a white man, you know, as a privileged <laughs> white man, like yeah. that uh, of of all of his books, I think that is uh, That's the intellectual. What's it called? Intellectuals though? in society.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um.
0: I I find that to be like by far his best book of of all the ones that I've read, just because he covers a massive amount of ground and he actually summarizes. He summarizes in, you know, a chapter stuff that he devotes entire books to elsewhere. And so yeah. he really distills it down into a very kind of uh, understandable. I
1: mean, like,
0: I'm curious. you know. um, Well, particularly, uh, there's this one part that I thought our, our listeners absolutely should. Uh, is where his, his basic idea of like the tragic vision. Versus the vision of the anointed, and I wanted to actually spend a a lot of time on that because I I think that is important. It's 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 so 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 powerful.
1: Yeah, I know it's really important part of it. So,
0: so. just uh, his basically, he says that um, that there's two underlying what we call uh, progressivism and conservatism. There are two very 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 different um, Mm -hmm. visions of the of the world and of human nature and of uh, civilization. And that if you, if you don't see that, then you're not going to be able to make sense of There's going to be just this huge chasm of
1: misunderstanding
0: yeah. between. And so for the, um, it says at the heart of the social vision prevalent among contemporary intellectuals is the belief that there are problems Created by institutions, and that solutions to these problems can be excogitated by intellectuals. The vision is both a vision of society and a vision of the role of intellectuals within society. In short, intellectuals have seen themselves not simply as an elite, in the passive sense in which large landowners, rentiers, or holders of various sinecures might qualify as elites, but as an anointed elite, people with a mission to lead others in one way or another toward better lives. And he goes on and he says, uh, the uh, vision of society in which there are many problems to be solved by applying the ideas of morally anointed intellectual elites is by no means the only vision, however much that vision may be prevalent among today's intellectuals. A conflicting vision has coexisted for centuries, a vision in which the inherent flaws of human beings are the fundamental problem and social contrivances are simply imperfect means of trying to cope with those flaws the imperfections of these contrivances being themselves products of the inherent shortcomings of human beings uh, that is the blah, blah, blah. so the idea being that uh, in a tragic vision can barbarism can
1: just, yeah yeah, yeah, sure. yeah just something quickly just the names of those he originally named those the cons- the, the unconstrained vision the first one you named out unconstrained and the second one, uh, the constraint, and I think Steven Pinker renamed them uh, utopian versus tragic visions, uh, which I think is a better. I think Steven Pinker's naming is, is better in the sense it makes you remember them more easily. Right. Like so people yeah. who a left wing view, let's say, just to put it on the political spectrum, would think that. If we have these amazing ideas and we put them into practice, usually through government, you know, then we're going to have things that are going to be better in the future, and we're going to move towards some sort of a utopia by our actions, right? The opposite view is a tragic view that we're just these miserable, you know, horrible people, all of us, we're all sinners, something like that, but in a religious sense. And all we, you know, we have to kind of have institutional structures that, you know, incentivize us not to be selfish and barbaric and to be, you know, to to go towards the better angels of our nature, right? Yeah. He, He even talks about how people with these two different views, it's almost like they're living on different planets, right? Like they, in the sense that, they're thinking about people in such different ways that it's almost like they're thinking about different people. In some At one point, he says that, which I think is really interesting. But anyway, I apologize. Yeah,
0: I no, no, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it is actually very, very... And I, I, like, uh, you know, I like what he says. This is from another one of his books where he says, um, the opposing visions differ not only in what they believe exists and in what they think is possible, but also in what they think needs explaining. To those with the vision of the anointed, it is such evils as poverty, crime, war, and injustice which require explanation. To those with the tragic vision, however, it is prosperity, law, peace, and such justice as we have achieved which require not only explanation, but constant efforts, trade-offs, and sacrifices just to maintain them at their existing levels, much less promote their enhancement over time. It's. I mean, that is just absolutely very fantastic. Yeah. It's very, very powerful, yeah. and I think it's. I think it's quite. It's quite true. I mean, I've. I've seen. Um, I've traveled around enough to. I've. I've been in places where you have an incredibly weak state, you know, where you yeah. have. Uh, you basically don't have law and order, where uh, violence is an ever-present threat. Um, and you have to, you have to be very, very careful, you know, because all sorts of bad things can happen to you easily. Right. If yeah. you've grown up in an environment like that, or you've, um, you've had, you've been exposed to it, then you, I think the tragic vision makes yeah. more sense yeah. because you realize, yeah. you realize <laughs> yeah. that uh, you realize that actually like not, not having any kind of like Constraint. Yeah. yeah, not having law and order, not having institutions, it's it doesn't sort of
1: it doesn't it, shake <laughs> out on its own. It doesn't just you know it, it doesn't just go towards calm and peace on its own naturally. Yeah. That's, exactly. And that's yeah, and right.
0: one thing I found with uh with with a lot of kind of progressives who have an, an anarchist bent and also with some uh, with some libertarians who have an anarchist bent is that they just—they're so unbelievably naive, in the, yeah. and and what, what Thomas Sowell talks about but like they think that somehow if you just eliminated, you know, law enforcement and eliminated the state, that there would be this wonderful spontaneous order would just emerge and it would be amazing, and everything would be great. And like Thomas Sowell's point is like, what are you fucking talking about? Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, it won't. Well, like, it's, it's no, also.
1: It's, it, I mean, Stephen Pinker's. I don't know if you've read his book, The Better Angels. I mean, it's sure, there, of course, I've all of the evidence, yeah. Times, yeah, all of the evidence in Thomas Sowell's work as well is is the opposite that humans lived in a state of anarchy for most of our time on this planet, where we spent most of our time trying to, you know make sure that this other group didn't attack us and maybe attack them first. And that took up a lot of our, you know, human capital, right. You know, uh, for us, you know, and when you have a Leviathan, when you have some sort of institutional structure, I was just reading one of Sol's books about empires, conquest and empires today. I was finishing up the part on uh, the United Kingdom. And he talked about how in England, they gradually moved towards a system where uh, the Leviathan was able to you know, basically become a normality there earlier than in other parts of Europe and the world. And that opens up then things like long-term investments, you know, people can say, okay, I want to spend, you know, this amount of money to make that amount of money in 20 years or something. And I know that the state's not going to repossess my stuff or that this, you know, someone's not going to come and steal it or some other sort of a thing. And you get a kind of um, uh, movement towards uh, a better life, let's say, right, in that context.
0: But, uh, well, I, I just, I guess one of my, one of my, I I find this is like definitely when he, when he describes this conflict divisions and when he describes like what these positions entail, this is for me, like him at, at his absolute best. Like I find him very wise and very useful and very interesting when he's talking about these, uh, these things where I find his thought, um, Falls apart and becomes much much more flimsy is when he tries to sort of connect the tragic vision to a sort of laissez-faire free market. Um, you know, it can be because it it seems to me that if you if you adopt the tragic vision, and I, I actually am incredibly I'm I'm very partial to the tragic vision, but if you adopt the tragic vision. It seems to push primarily in the opposite direction that you can't and i he never in in everything i 've written i've 've read by him, he never adequately explains uh, how he reconciles this tragic vision with free markets because he says that well, there's going to be this spontaneous order that's going to emerge, and that if you just get out of the way, everything when in fact, his whole argument pushes in the other direction.
1: Yeah, I, I don't see that the same way, I think, because I, there's something in, in economics called emergent order, which he's referring to, right? Which is to say that, I mean, you, one example I think Sowell gives, and a lot of people give us an example of emergent order, is um, you know, language. There's no, no nobody, nobody designed the language we speak, right? It sort of shakes out over time and words, you know, uh, we, we start using certain words and they become common or they don't just depending on social, um, you know, convention. And part of the tragic vision too is an allowance for um, something like wisdom and accrued knowledge being put. He talks a lot about this. I'm sure you've noticed this right Sure. ahead of because um, the anointed, if you think about the anointed, it's a focus on, you know, abstract thinking and IQ, right? So it's sort of like, you can take all these ideas and put them together and they're beautiful there. And then, you know, whether or not they apply over time, whether or not it's going to work over a period of time is is not known. And they might or they might not. But if you look at an institutional structure that functions over a very long period of time, it seems to work. Right. There's a lot of accrued knowledge in there, like in a country, let's say. Right. You know. So I don't, I don't mm-hmm. see a contradiction there. I don't, you know, like, I, I, you know, those things can. Emergent order is something that can exist in biology. It exists in economics. It exists in all sorts of things. And I don't see. Oh, it emerged, its a basic yeah. property of the universe as we know it. It's a of right. physics, biology, yeah. everything. No, I, I, I totally. How is like, that I, in conflict with with the tragic vision? I don't. I'm just. They seem like different things. So maybe I'm not. Following your logic, I don't know, but um.
0: well, because okay, to take an analogy to to horticulture, to to gardening. So my my buddy Alex is planning out all of his his gardens for the summer, and he's got an expanded. And so, what you do with with gardening is you you obviously set up a situation. You build fences to keep out like groundhogs, and you have other things to try and. uh, to protect your plants from uh, from pests and from fungi and from you know birds and various things like that. And so then you try and make sure you've got the right uh, soil, right fertilizer, and all those things. And so you set it all up, and then you put in um, a bunch of different plants. But then there's this this randomness, and there's there's stuff that's outside of your control, which is like the amount of sun that It happens that summer. How cold it gets, how hot it gets, if there's enough rain or too much or too little, or there's all these other factors which are not out of your control. And so if you try and obsessive compulsively manage a garden, it won't work. But you basically you you do a bunch of stuff and then you kind of just like see what comes up and you see what does well. And then you even if you don't understand why. This plant that you really wanted to grow just doesn't seem to fucking like living here. It right? <laughs> just doesn't. It, it looks like shit all the time. It doesn't. It's really okay. fragile. It's
1: unhappy, you, right? you basically okay. have
0: to, yeah, you basically yeah. have to go with like what seems to, um, out of this emergent order, what is like working well and what isn't, right? So I see an economy as being similar to that. There's, there's a bunch of factors that no amount of central planning is ever going to be able to you know, think of everything, right? So what you do is you create an economy with, that is governed by by laws and by certain things that you can and cannot do uh, that are against the law. And so you create this good environment um, with with restrictions and stuff like that and then you sort of just like sit back and see what comes up and see what right. works and right. what doesn't, right? And you can't uh, it seems to me like the, so, right, the, so would- the far end of the laissez faire spectrum seems to want to say that we should just um, get rid of all of those restrictions, and that's going to un, uh, sort of unpack or unleash the, the true power of our garden. When in fact, mm-hmm. if you take down the, uh, the fences around your garden, if you stop, Like monitoring the water, and like so, you say, "Well, I just want to, you know, survival of the fittest." Like so, let's say it gets really hot and dry for two weeks in July, you know. And now a smart gardener would notice this and water the garden once a day. But somebody says, "Yeah, I just want it to be, you know, survival of the fittest," just like, "Hey, you know, too big to fail." Like, okay, well, I'm just going to let my whole fucking garden be. I mean, you're an idiot. Like, you're going to, like, you're going to yeah, well, not water it. I like, can too, so to
1: like, too big to fail is actually intervening, in fact, right? It's, you know what I mean? Like, the, well,
0: but I think, I think, inter, in the same way that uh, intelligent, you know, if you, if you overgarden a garden,
1: it's it's not going to work. That's, but, if you, that's, but if you underprotect it, it will it will somehow be. Yeah, and you know, I think I think it seems. That, yeah,
0: I think yeah, it seems it's like obvious that. to me. And uh, Jonathan Heights is is working his his new book is on uh, the morality of capitalism, and he's talking about how people. He's very influenced by Thomas Sowell, and he was saying he was telling me that uh, he's, he's writing on this, and he says, you "No, know, people imagine." especially in academics and intellectuals and people on the left, that capitalism is just this immoral um, system. And he says, actually, it's intensely moral. And it's so dependent on morality and ethics that if you try and set up, if you try and make capitalism work in a place that doesn't have the proper sort of culture and, and morality and ethics in place, that capitalism will not take root there. It won't work. That you need to actually, people have to be quite trustworthy and honest and you have to have high amounts of social trust and law and order for capitalism to work, right? So so his his point is, yeah, his point is that the idea, the idea that just getting rid of all government regulations and that this naturally is going to unleash the, the power of the economy so this is just completely a wrong way to like think about it like it's it's about like the right kinds of fences and the right kinds of interventions that help the garden flourish you know to its its greatest extent it's but there is this among certain uh, certain people there's this idea that somehow you know there's there's one way to fix all of these problems that's Deregulation and there's one problem, and it's always government, and it becomes so circular that you can, you can be, you can basically explain, absolutely, it's like trying to talk to a fundamentalist Christian. Like they can explain everything with regard to demonic uh, intervention in the world. Like, and it doesn't matter. Like you can bring bring up any objection, they're like, well, clearly that's just demonic, and so they'll say like, oh, well, that's government regulation, that's what caused that. That's right. It's like, you know, if it explains everything, it explains nothing. Yeah. So they, I,
1: I, I just what I would interject there quickly is that the you, you mentioned that the you know that the uh, you know some places have functioning economies. You know, take Denmark or some place that has, or the United States or some really functional place, and you've got a higher level of trust than you have in you know I don't know uh, Angola or you know Russia or some country where there's best, and that's true, except that it's not necessarily, I mean, it's, it's embedded into the culture through the institutions in a country that functions well. You know, people build up that trust over time when the institutions are like just the walls around the garden, pretty much, right? You know, it's like you set up this system and you, you know, the walls around the garden to me, when you talk about that, what I see is a good system of defense, because that's what the government should be doing, right? Making sure the country is safe from... Um, external attack inside the garden, you know, when you're doing some of the micromanaging, you know, you're pulling the, you know, the insects get in there, you try and get them out of there. That's like internal security, right? That's kind of like maybe policing. People can't, if people can't feel safe, right, they're not likely to go out of their houses and do things, you know, in order to make their lives better and other people's lives better, right? They're going to stay home and that's going to be bad for them. And, you know, we're seeing that right now, obviously, but to say that that it I don't think it's in, in the culture necessarily I think that, that culture develops over time and it can develop I believe I I'm, maybe I'm optimistic but I think that that type of culture can exist anywhere I don't think there's any I don't think there's anything unique about Danes as people <laughs> like I don't think that they're you know superior in any way to you know Russians or Angolans or something like that it's just that over time that has risen the the trust has risen over time and they've got this for the most part, in a functional society, you've got kind of a good balance between those things. Now, just to get to your point about, um, you know, the uh, um, the growth, I think the deregulation point is that, you know, any institution will seek to, you know, expand and get more powerful. Any, any institution, any individual, any, you know, that's a natural tendency. So a business will try and grow, right? Governments will do the same thing, right? They will, right? They will, if they can, they will expand. So, You see see this cycle where there's increasing intervention in the economy, usually for some sort of an emergency. So you had the 1930s, you know, had this, um, you know, this terrible depression. And then there was a war. Both of those things um, needed uh, government intervention, especially the war. I think there's a better case for that, right? That needs more of government intervention. Then a lot of those things remained in place, right? I don't know if you've read basic economics, but you, it, by... Yes, yeah. yeah it but a lot of those things stayed in place. So by the 1970s, you got this sort of choking, seizing structure in place, right? That's where the idea of laissez-faire... I don't think uh, laissez-faire means just take everything away. I think it means... In, you know, all else being equal, it's better to let people transact as they wish than to intervene. And and unless you can prove otherwise, unless you can prove that there's going to be some sort of imminent threat as a result of that that openness, right? And so 90% of the time, it's, you know, so if we just take some local examples here in Canada, you know, um, just to take deregulation, right? So you have the airline industry in Canada is sort of partly deregulated. You've got, you know, you've got two major airlines, some smaller ones, but it's also protected from foreign competition, right? So that means that if I'm going to fly from Montreal to, to, to Vancouver or something like that, right, I, I don't, I can only fly on a Canadian airline. We have the same thing with um, uh, cellular telephone, uh, you know, uh, provision, right? So you, I can't buy a ticket from American Airlines and fly from Montreal to Vancouver. I have to buy, right? So if we were to open that up, the prices would go down. Right? You could say, well, no, but then we're just going to be taken over by all these American airlines and European airlines that come in. That's true, except that that opening is almost always reciprocal, right? So if we were to open it up, they would open their markets. So Air Canada could fly from New York to Los Angeles and Chicago to Atlanta, or whatever as well, right? And there's very little evidence that it would actually, um, it, most of the time when those types of things open up and liberalize, you see expansion and more well-being most of the time, right? The, anyway, the concept of predatory pricing is another thing. If you want me to keep, keep talking, Thomas Sol talks a lot about how that actually is, um, makes doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, the, you know, if you play it out to its conclusion, right? Um, if you have... You know, predatory pricing, just to expose what it means, right? So the the idea is that Walmart is going to come into Canada and it's going to drop prices to below even what they can, you know, charge to make money. And they're going to drive all the retailers out and they're going to become the main retailer. And then they're going to jack up the prices for all eternity, right? That's the theory. You really can't find an example where that's happened, right? The only cases where you see a predatory monopoly... Aware of maybe you can tell me one is um, when the government protects it, right? The SAQ, right? There's if, if you want to buy liquor in Quebec, right? You have to go to the SAQ. So they, you know, they charge. And then to me, there's two effects of that. So the prices are higher, right? That's one negative effect. So you know, the other negative effect is that guy who owns the depeneur, he can't enrich his life by offering liquor, right? <laughs> So his life in some senses is made worse off as well. Right. So we have um, fewer opportunities for people when we have these types of government monopolies, but we have more opportunities when we disperse them, you know, but anyway. Well, th- but the typical depth uh, and I, I'm really fascinated
0: with the economics yeah, right, of depth, yeah. actually, or <laughs> for too. our yeah. listeners who live in New York, this is a bodego. Or a corner store, or like it's a kind of an an all purpose kind of store that you can get everything from tampons to milk to bread to beer, cigarettes uh, at. The typical DEP brings in 80 to 90% of their profit is from selling liquor. Uh, cigarettes beer, and beer. lottery tickets not liquor they're not allowed to sell liquor. Well tea. yeah I mean like I mean at booze yeah. Yeah. booze, yeah. booze, booze yeah. cigarettes and lottery tickets so yeah. uh, they are making money off of booze
1: no but not from liquor though no they're, not no, no, but, they're but they're
0: they're making lots of they're they're actually the typical debt is is way more
1: profitable than an SAQ Well, that's because they're better run and better managed than the SAQ. That's probably, I mean, I don't know. That's an interesting um, uh, thing, but the SAQ has a, has a centralized bureaucracy. It has, You know, these buyers, so you get this problem, again, with something like the SAQ, where you've got a centralized system of buyings. then that means that the big wine and liquor producers, they fly the buyers over to Paris and to the south of France and try and wine and dine them, because if they can convince that one guy, you know, he's going to buy all this wine. Whereas when you have different distributors competing, right, who's going to buy the stuff, the prices will go down, right? Yeah. For now, I mean, you can say, "Well, who cares if people pay more for beer? You know, it's bad for their health and so on." You know, but again, I I still think it's it's a smaller thing. It's it's a, you know, you're right in 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 Quebec because the fact that beer is available in many parts of Canada, that's not the case, right? But, yeah. Well, there's. I mean, there is the other issue that you know,
0: talking about how oh, we need to remove all barriers to. To trade and things like this and this is necessarily going to uh is necessarily going to produce like the best results that that's clearly true um with a number of things in fact i would maybe even say that's true with most things but there's like there's plenty of things where that's where that's not true and it usually kind of covers up uh so if you so look at things, you know why, sorry, why sorry, Finland, like, yeah, like yeah what why Finland was good yeah. at cell phones Right or why or why the um, the United States was the powerhouse in the nineteenth century when they were still kind of a small country. It was largely because they they had a lot of protections on their own industries, and a lot like you look all over the world at the economies that uh, that have done really well and that are doing really well they often have all sorts of like controls they they shelter certain industries to to help them. Uh, to help them grow and to give them advantages and things like that. And then after that, you know, when they become really big, they go on the world stage and say, you know, the way the United States has done at various points, like, okay, everybody just have like free trade and don't, I don't have any protectionism don't protect any kind of industries when they're young. And you kind of look at American history and say, well, that's what you guys did like that's you know you guys did this in fact like most of the economies that are really kicking ass did precisely that so it's it seems sort of disingenuous to yeah. say
1: like the united states had enormous foreign investment when it was a developing country in the 19th century mostly from british capital so it had it was fairly open to investment that's a really key one right you have to allow capital and again you have to have a framework inside where if someone's going to come into your country and invest in, you know, building a railroad or whatever it's going to be, they don't want a fear that it's going to be, you know, t- you know, just the legal structure is going to change to more. Right? It's like, oh my god, now you know we invested ten million dollars and we, you know now it's all different. Or even worse, what you see in some places is seizures, right? Nationalization of things, right? Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's, I don't really agree necessarily, at least I don't see it the same way that the United States, I mean, that there was more protectionism in the past, generally speaking across the world. You've seen less protectionism over time, and that's always reciprocal, right? Those things tend to be things, you know, two entities. In this case, we're talking about countries. will get together and agree to, you know, and in some cases they can be multilateral, but the general... Axiom is still the same, that the more exchange you allow, generally speaking, it's going to be better for most people. Now, there are losers in this, right? We see, I mean, just to talk about the US in, in modern times, that, you know, this li- li- most recent um, period of open worldwide trade has created a very severe, um, let's say, a cleavage between um, certain segments of American society, and this is playing out in other countries as well, probably in this country to a lesser extent, but, you know, so you have some people who are more, you know, they live on the coast of San Francisco and they're more familiar with a restaurant in Beijing and they've never been into Fresno or whatever. And there are people living in there that they would sort of look down upon, right? That's partly a result of this, you know, very highly open trade of the world is perhaps a negative effect too. I don't know how to solve that problem simply by, putting up trade barriers that cultural problem has been created i don't you know i'm not sure how to deal with that how to fit that into the economic structure but there's no doubt that the that the openness of trade has led to more um you know the the rising of living standards in most places right i mean i think the i think the answer is you know what
0: andrew Yang says it's it's some sort of version of universal basic income, because, you know, once you, once you have that, I think probably the most, the most um, scathing indictment that I've read of the present way of doing things, it didn't come, it's funny. It didn't come from a, which I would have expected it to come from. It didn't come from like somebody who's a real sort of free market, um, you know, libertarian, or it didn't come from somebody. It came from David Graeber, who just died recently, quite suddenly. And in his book "Bullshit Jobs," he uh, he has a whole chapter devoted to um, why why we need a universal basic income. And he says, you know, right now we have this policy all over all over the industrialized world, uh, where which came out of the Great Depression which was saying that, okay, we need to have full employment because full employment is, you know, really good. You know, people will be making money. They'll have taxes. And as soon as people are unemployed, they become sort of the government's problem. And we, we want to have as few people in that side of the, in that category as possible, right? So you, so this is why, um, you know, he goes, we have this idea that corporate welfare is all a function of corruption that, you know, that you have these government officials that are in bed with the oil and gas industry or the car industry. And that's why they're giving them all these subsidies and all these breaks and things like that. And he says, actually, the truth is so much more depressing than that. Uh, He says, yes, sure. There's sometimes where it's, it's straight up corruption. Sure. But very often, it's no money's changing hands. It's not corruption in the sense of like muha ha ha. It's more that they will, the Quebec government will give all sorts of money to Bombardier, or the American government will give all sorts of money to GM or to Ford or Chrysler because not they Ford. don't want, yeah. well, anyway. uh, they it's do, Ford. Ford too. Ford, they gave Ford right. lots of money, yeah, okay. And they, but it's always on the reasoning that we don't want to lose all of those jobs,
1: right? Because right. all of those right. jobs—they're voters. They're voters. That's, yeah. one, that's one reason, right? But <laughs> but it
0: ends up being it ends up being probably you know as David Graeber says, it's one of the most perverse uh, forms of trickle down in economics that he said I can't think yeah. of any. Because you're, you're literally paying... I agree. You're paying like twice a person's salary to keep them in the job. It's like if you would just give them the money directly some, in some other way, that would actually be way cheaper.
1: I, I think I Thomas Sowell would agree that that's... Compl- in fact, I've read pieces by him where he points out when you subsidize an industry in some way, you, you, know, that you effectively are paying these people way too much to do something that you would be better off... If the industry were, let's say the 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 aeronautics industry in Quebec, let's imagine this sort of worst case scenario that it just completely died because the government, you know, but that, that would still be better in the longer run because then, you know, that because then we those people would maybe go do something more interesting that like you know like it's better for them or something like that, right? Yeah,
0: I, I guess one of yeah. the no, I do one of the questions I was looking at sort of people who grew up in the same. Millier as Thomas Sowell, and one person that immediately came to mind as an interesting parallel was um, Daniel Bell, you know, the great American intellectual, and he, he also had a similar trajectory where he started off as a Marxist, and then he gradually uh, shifted. He became a hardcore, like, cold warrior, and he became, um, you know, very kind of a cold warrior and very kind of conservative right-wing guy. But he also, he did something that, that I've never seen. Maybe Thomas Sowell did this. I mean, he's incredibly prolific. Maybe he did this somewhere that I'm not aware of. But in everything I've read of Thomas Sowell, I've never seen him address um, that contradiction that I mentioned before between a commitment to the tragic vision and a commitment to free, just like a very kind of laissez-faire attitude towards economists. But Daniel Bell wrote a book, uh, which in conservative circles is considered an absolute classic. It's called um, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism in 1976. And he he addressed this question head on. And he said that there is this there is this problem, uh, which is that capitalism tends to, Sort of encourage um, certain kinds of worldviews and certain kinds of you know ways of being in the world, which end up making you a bad capitalist. So it's like it's, it's it seems very strange, but the people who often um, are are best at capitalism are people who come from you know various minority groups, religious minority groups, or various who have. Um, You know, have a real commitment to hard work and diligence, and who have you know within their their group they have a great deal of kind of trust, and you see this in many groups all over the world that are very much involved in in trade. You can look at um, Han Chinese all over Southeast Asia and Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. Middlemen minorities, I think they're called. Yeah, they're sort of like South South Asians in East Africa and other places, and then. Jews in a lot of places um, there's there are these like minority groups that end up really kicking ass at trade and uh, like they, they kick ass at capitalism but the reason why they kick ass is to some extent because of stuff that have nothing to do with capitalism and if their kids just grow up and are completely assimilated into the mainstream consumer culture chances are their kids are going to suck at being capitalists.
1: Well, there's evidence for that. Yeah, with with the Chinese, I think third-generation Chinese Americans are nowhere near as well-off as their grandparents and the first few generations in the United States. That's just some proof. I think that's probably true, right? Yeah, well, this is,
0: I I think there was, what was the book called? It was uh, the the full package—I think that was what it was called—and it, it's Amy Chua. And, Amy Chua, yeah, yeah. yeah That's who I'm referring her, to. I'm actually yeah, referencing yeah. her, yeah, yeah. And her husband—they wrote that book, "The Full Package," which was it looked at um, Han Chinese, Hindu South, South Asians, Mormons, and Jews in the United States. And these are three minority groups that
1: punch way, way above their weight economically. Economically, but not in other areas there, that we could talk about, right? Like, I mean, like, like you, you could just look at economics. But what about like if you included the greatest uh, musical uh, geniuses of the past seventy-five years, right? You wouldn't find too many Chinese Americans in that. You would find a lot of African Americans, you know. That, yeah, right. And tons but, of I mean, Jews it's really as well. Not, yeah, so. yeah. A lot of Jews too. Yeah, the Jews are an interesting. Yeah. Uh, Dependent? You mean the music producers? Like, I'm not sure. Or- oh, even musicians. That's been. Yeah. I mean, they've been. But I mean, their,
0: their point was that there. You know, and this is kind of Daniel Bell's point: is that there is this. Uh, generally speaking, um, if you have if you have a system, it tends to reproduce itself. That is the norm, right? So, and capitalism seems. Daniel Bell's point is capitalism seems to be strange, in in the sense that it's a system that the more that the more thoroughly people adopt it, it, it tends to extinguish itself. Right. It tends to actually suck up all the oxygen in the room and then not, uh, not, not be able to go on. So that's why capitalism is constantly um, of necessity is always looking for new markets and new places, you know, emerging markets. And is always, Bringing in more and more people into the fold, and very often those people who are brought into the fold uh, do very well at that system, but to the extent to which they do well, um their kids probably will not be good at it, which is which is this right. weird which is this weird contradiction well, well, Daniel yeah. Bell was saying you know there's yeah. there's
1: you have to you know who
0: knows if there's a solution to
1: this this well, it also raises, to me, this raises a, sort of some philosophical questions about what's important, right? So we're, we're looking at, we're measuring it, the importance and success on, how, you know, just on basically on income and wealth, right? That's what we're doing right now, right? So we're saying a group of people who, they make a lot of money and they own a lot of stuff or whatever they're doing really well. There are other things you could, like if you took a Soeli analysis, you know how Thomas Sowell goes to like Malaysia and like digs through archives to try and find the differences between the the Malays and, and the chinese in that country i don't know if you've read those studies that he, that, no
0: i haven't read yeah, that he, that's really he's interesting
1: gone, he's gone into great detail about this trying to explain you know the, the diff, exactly what you're talking about why certain groups do better and why other ones don't but you like i find it fascinating cause he, to to read about because he talks about how the Malays they dominate the political system in that country and they uh, you know um uh, the other social institutions as well but they're but they're like totally absent in the businesses and the and the sciences and things like this it 's very interesting it's very um and so again, it goes back to what you 're saying but if if you take a look at like what 's important right so you could look at our wonderful province, Quebec, right you could see some similar patterns right a Jewish minority that has done exceptionally well. You could also see the, uh, you know, the, the creation, the, the 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 creation of Quebec as a British entity, with a with an anglophone minority that was very important in um, in business. You could break down the groups, Scottish Canadians being really big in business and engineering and stuff like this, and say, wow, that's interesting. Similar type of a of a you know analysis. Then you could say, well, what about the French Canadians? Right, they seem to be. Um, lower economically throughout history, which is true. And in fact, Franco-Americans, if you look at um, people from Quebec, mostly from Quebec, who emigrated to the United States, even to this day have lower income than other Americans. I don't know if you do that, but that's also... I did not know that, no. Yeah. So you wonder, what's that about? Then you look around, and you say, what was important to people in Quebec, especially in small towns? Well, you know, they had a community. They would always build an incredible church, you know, you go around, it's something just amazes me, you know, not just in Montreal, but you go to any town in Quebec and you just see this spectacular stonemasonry, you know, right? Yeah. What built that? That wasn't some sort of an economic, like that was something where those, they valued that. They wanted to have a beautiful church. It was a status thing. And then, you know, the stone, they got really good at stonemasonry. This is something you see. So you see some generation over generation people working in stone and artistic things, you know, and you see a yeah. lot of francophones going into the law. There was, a, you know, sort of the clerical element of the society was, you know, but years ago I worked in a, you um, know. I'm so glad you pointed that out because that's, really? that's something that I've tried to explain
0: to my American relatives and friends and they they always just, it's. You really have to see it to to understand, yeah. like how it's like you go to this place, <laughs> yeah. you go to this like small town in Quebec, like two hundred people there. That's, that's, yeah. yeah, and it's you look at like it's never had a population more than sort of two thousand, three thousand people ever in its history. It's in this desolate wasteland. It doesn't have a lot of resources. It's not as if they're sitting next to some massive you know diamond mine or most productive agricultural land in the world, or like you know oil and gas like reserves or it's it's like in this place where it's it's winter for six seven months out of the year it's cold it's doesn't have a lot of natural resources, and they've got this stunning Catholic church that yeah. is just like to build something like that with the kind of the kind of artistry that went in like you say the stonemasons the, the woodwork, the, everything yeah, no, it would incredible. just cost like it would cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build a like, people like day. that today. And these poor communities they like did it. over they did it over I mean it's, it's sort of I was trying to explain it to one of my cousins and I said you know, you go to like a small town in Iowa or in New Hampshire and you see the church and it's like this sober Protestant, all white church with a little cross at the front. It looks like it fits the town, right? Like, but imagine if you went to some small town in the middle of Iowa and they had a giant opera (laughs) hall, like a giant, beautiful, like palatial opera hall. and, And they had a play like, and you're like, how did they put up this huge like? And then they had like a massive museum, you know, yeah. with all sorts of like Monets and like yeah, you know, Picassos and stuff like that. You, how the fuck did they afford this shit? Yeah. It's
1: it's well, because, it, it also like it, you say, it's yeah, what they prioritized. But it's also interesting because these things. I mean, Soul talks extensively about these things how uh, passed intergenerationally, right? So it's like you know. Um, so he studies, for example, German immigrants in in Canada and the United States and Brazil, and he finds all these similarities between and even their descendants, right? You know, so years ago I worked for this uh, for for a multimedia company, and for about a couple of years, and I was a producer there. And I the company grew very quickly. We made like websites and things like that. So there were producers, and there were people who worked on the finance end, and there were there were uh, graphic artists and programmers. And I started to notice as the company got really big that you could see differences in the kind of people who were graphic artists or the kind of people who were programmers, like the graphic artists were almost entirely French Canadians. Right. And yet there were almost nobody in the finance end who were very few who were much fewer, not nobody, but a lot smaller percentage, let's say, you know, so you look at that and you think, well, why is that right? Why would young francophones growing up in the 1990s, you know, be much more likely to go and study how to, use Photoshop and try and get a job, right? As opposed to studying finance or something like that. And many also study finance, but you wonder if these things, you know, they create different outcomes. Some of them may end up with, you know, um, you might have people who end up on average poorer in some cases because of the choices they make, right? So if you look at Irish immigrants to the United States who tended to go into politics and becoming cops and stuff like that they didn't do as well financially as um, you know uh, say the Jewish immigrants right who started business did all the stuff right so does that mean I mean you know those differences between Jewish immigrants and Irish immigrants you know the Irish Thomas Sowell's uh, books about these two groups are really fascinating I don't know if you've read them but the Irish being really big in unions in the law, like if you look at the um, the the, uh, the political systems in the 19th, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century in the U.S., like the the, the cities, you know, like the town, yeah. all that kind of stuff, all dominated by Irish immigrants, and yet they were poor, right? The rest of them, you know, living down in the slums and everything, were extremely poor, you know.
0: Yeah, and- I read I read this comparison. This is like. He did this when he was a young man, but I read his, his comparison of uh, the Jews and the Irish in Chicago, where he looks at how he says this is a really nice natural experiment because you have these uh, two groups. They both came to, um, to the Chicago area in large numbers at about the same point in history. Right. These big waves and they came with, um, with very similar, most of them did not come with uh, any, any resources to speak poor. of. Very yeah, they're poor. very poor. Uh, and then he sort of goes in the pros and cons, like categories as well. You know, the Irish, um, one thing they had going for them is that you know, at least they spoke the language of the majority well. Um, with, with, and a lot of the Jews who came did not speak English. They had to learn English. So he's like, okay, so at one point Irish, you know, and then he goes through different things, but he says how, you know, within, within a generation, the, uh, the Jewish immigrants were doing much, much better than the Irish immigrants. And then within two generations, it was just night and day, yeah. and he talks about like, you know, why is this? And so, you know, what did the uh, what did the Irish the Irish community tend to put their? What did they invest in, and what did they politics. Politics. Well, uh, politics, dominated. getting into like uh, into law enforcement, into politics, into uh, union jobs, into various things like that, and then meanwhile wow. the Jews in general tended to go more into uh, entrepreneurial ventures, into uh, trades to some extent, and you know, and into education.
1: Right. All of which
0: ended up uh, paying off and doing.
1: Being a better kind of. Did he also did he also mention the different customs and habits? Because I yeah. Some point, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks the Irish about how to drink more and you know, that kind of thing, which yeah. is interesting. Oh, too. he talks
0: about and he even yeah. talks about the drinking thing. How yeah. even that is uh, is is culturally dependent. So he says the uh, the Italian immigrants um, on average, in terms of their yearly consumption of alcohol, drank just as much as the Irish um, immigrants but they had practically none of the social dysfunction of the Irish. And this is because he says the, the Italians were drinking um, primarily like a vast majority of them were drinking at the table with the family in a meal. And meanwhile, (laughs) the Irish were the guys were going out to the par by themselves, drinking all their pay, Going to getting, the into, house fight. getting right. into fights yeah, yeah, so yeah. You, yeah. you have uh you have in one instance you have alcohol being used as a, a social lubricant to bring a family together together so they're laughing and joking and having fun and, and <laughs> yeah. bonding more right in yeah. uh, another one you're using alcohol yeah. It, yeah alcohol causes like massive social dysfunction it's exactly the same substance right but yeah uh, but the way it's used yeah i think i i definitely like his um his i I guess you would call it almost like cultural geography it's a very sort of he tries to see you know how do certain cultural practices persist and evolve over time and and predict outcomes
1: you know, and what determine think, outcomes. Yeah, the, just a quick question there, John. What do you think about his theory about Southern, or at least like American black culture, being a kind of a, a you know his basic theory is that these immigrants came to the U.S. South from the border regions of Scotland and England that were very violent and dangerous before the United Kingdom went through its transformations. From Scotland, right? And they went to the U.S. South. They had these habits of. You know religious observance, where they'd all eyes would roll back in their head, and they would get into fights, and they were all this stuff, and that that somehow transmogrified to the Af- to the slave community there. This is his theory, you know, and that those maintained within the the black community in the South and in the North, because the immigrants, the migrants, the black migrants to the northern United States, like big cities like Detroit. They would tend to be segregated through you know from racism right they would end up in their own communities they wouldn't integrate into the population the way the southern whites would in places like detroit or new york so he believes that these things that we associate with black english and and so on actually come from um you know the the um, from the scottish you know whatever these these people a long time ago You've read that book, right, John?
0: Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, that was I the, you, yeah. That was the first one I read of his,
1: actually, because I
0: thought it was such a provocative <laughs> thesis. So I mean, the first time I heard of it, I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like, so um, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting argument. I'm not, I'm, I tend to be, I don't really know if it's true. I feel there's a whole bunch of information that I think I would, I would need to. Um, I would need to have and, and to learn to be able to like evaluate whether that's true or not. I tend to think that um, it's it's much more it's much more a function of uh, of nature rather than culture. And what I mean by that is, I think uh, we have got to the top of the food chain. We've been extremely successful as a species um, because we're we're very good at. Cooperation. We're incredibly good at cooperation. We're very, and that's you know, this is one of the things I I try and tell my students. Is you know, I know you keep hearing that the the characteristic, the central characteristic of of business and economics is ruthless competition and all this stuff, but actually, the central feature from an ethological standpoint, if you're just looking at humans as animals. The central, most glaring thing that jumps out at you when you look at the world of business is incredible degree of cooperation, like so much cooperation, so much honesty, so much trust, so much morality, so much people doing the right thing even when they can get away with doing the wrong thing, like that. And that even that characterizes even the uh, black market trades in, in sure. arms or drugs. Like if if people actually, you know, the, the expression honor among thieves, like if there was not honor among thieves, it wouldn't uh, there, there thievery wouldn't work. <laughs> like crime crime yeah. like they talk about organized crime. Crime only works because it's organized.
1: Yeah.
0: Like disorganized crime doesn't work. Like it not not for very long. I mean like you get so
1: it's you have to be able to trust people and well, this gets, yeah. It gets back to this idea that, I mean, effectively, you can think of humans, when they interact with each other, when they're strangers, like, let's say, let's say two groups of people live close to each other, right? Like two tribes or nations or whatever. There's two ways they can interact, really, that they can fight with each other. And then they one can try and dominate the other and take all this stuff or their stuff or whatever, right? Or they can exchange peacefully. Right. They can go and trade things with each other. You know, maybe one group makes better at making spears, the other group is better at cutting, maybe they live closer to the water or something. So they can get fish and they can sell them fish for the spears or something. Right. And you see this dynamic all through history. Right. And so the I think in the Soelian and the Stephen Pinker and different, you know, people like this, what they really are saying is that these two elements exist in our nature. And we want to try and you know encourage the peaceful exchange element. Right. The exactly what you're talking about, right? The cooperation element as opposed to the dominance and fighting element as a you know, and we can't get rid of you know the 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 fighting that you know the herb the the way of fighting that's part of our nature as well. And there's always gonna be some criminal, some criminality is people doing that, right? Like people just stealing from other people, taking their stuff, you know. You can't get rid of it completely. You can drop it down, but you can't get it down to zero, right? hmm
0: yeah well i i think and that's why i think i i tend to see it as being much more, like better to think about it as a function of nature than culture so i think right, right, right. It, it, depending upon uh to give you sort of an analogy to to um one of our relatives the uh, there's these monkeys in southeast asia and they you find them I, i've seen them in the wild they're really cool looking but you see them in, in Malaysia and Indonesia and on islands. And you can see them in Singapore even like, but they um, I'm blanking on the name of the, they're like golden something, uh, but they're really, really cool. But apparently these, these monkeys, they have a, a flexible social organization and it depends on, uh, it depends on sort of outside pressures. So there's this giant eagle that eats monkeys. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it, it's like one of the, I think it's like, if it's not the biggest eagle in the world, it's one of the biggest eagles. Like the thing is uh, like fucking, fucking huge. Know. Like it, it like stands <laughs> like three feet tall. Wow. It's got a massive, massive, they eat monkeys. So on islands that are in Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines and uh, Papua New Guinea, where these monkeys are found on islands that are completely covered in forests so that it's like the forest is thick so it's really hard for the eagles to like get in and get the monkeys right um, on those islands the monkeys tend to live in pretty small groups um, they and they there's quite a bit of conflict within groups and quite a bit of conflict uh, between groups Right There's like you you see them fighting a lot and like fighting over territory and doing stuff like that. And then there's some islands where there's uh, the the forest cover is is more sparse and there's lots of spaces between the trees. And so the eagles can get at the monkeys pretty easily in those places. Well, on those islands, the monkeys uh, tend to live in much larger troops. So whereas on the, the heavily forested islands, they might live in groups of 20 or 30. Um, in the islands that where there's more predation threats, they, um, they'll live in groups of 150 to 200, and they'll have lots of monkeys who are on guard duty all the time. <laughs> and then also their organization is very different. So on those islands... Uh, there are um, alpha males and alpha females within the group that heavily police conflict within the group right so if if two people start if two monkeys start fighting they immediately are on them kicking the shit out of them like you know quit your quit your shit you know before it like kind of before the eagle comes in and kills both of you kind of thing well because they they seem to they seem to sort of recognize there's like an emergent order where they recognize that in order to survive we have to have much higher degrees of cohesion and cooperation, and what 's interesting is that these these social structures are so flexible that if you have um, there 's been on islands where they 've done heavy uh, deforestation you know for the logging of islands, so they 've taken an island that was heavily covered and suddenly uh, gotten rid of like fifty percent of the trees so it 's more So now the monkeys are, and what you see is the small groups coalesce coalesce, uh, into bigger groups, and they change their their organization. And the same thing for islands where um, the the forest grows back and it becomes heavily. Well, you get you get like separatist movements within, (laughs) and they go off and
1: form like smaller groups and so, you have so much happens, more conflict just can I ask something quickly there they they that happens fast enough that they don't get killed like the deforestation gets done and then all of a sudden the monks start getting killed so they actually start banding together quickly yeah after yeah they, 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 they it's right, quite they, flexible yeah. and
0: I think I think humans do the same thing and so I yeah. think if you look at what happens in prisons There's an an emergent Emergent order order. that comes in prisons or in like subcultures where whenever you have the absence of a Leviathan, when you have the absence of some sort of central uh, power that keeps the peace and that Mm -hmm. that imposes, when you have that, well, then suddenly people need to become much more tribal and they need to become much more kind of wired and on edge and they become much more sensitive to insults, and they have to respond. Yeah. Probably the saddest example of this I've seen. Did you see on Netflix the um, they had that movie, The Central Park Five?
1: Uh, is that the one about those guys in New York that um, that were uh, that Donald Trump? I think he said they should die or something. Or yes. Is that- yeah. Yes. Well, the they one were. So they, basically, the
0: Central Park Five was these. There was this white woman who was a jogger, and she was like, like, really violently raped and beaten and left for dead. She was in a coma for for like months, and um, and these five kind of, uh, these five kind of black and Latino, I think it was one of them was Latino, uh, teenagers were picked up on incredibly flimsy evidence and were railroaded and put into prison, and even though lots of evidence was coming out that um, that showed that it was not them. Um, they just kept railroading them.
1: So they went to jail for a really long time. Eventually, they were the guy... Who, when, when They See Us, I think, is the Netflix dramatization. I think it's called When They See Us, I believe. Is that what
0: it is? Okay, well, then I'm... Uh, yeah. I, think I'm you, uh, I think you posted I'm, I'm about it. I'm squishing together yeah. two... So the you're totally right. Yeah, when they see us, I just looked it up. Yeah. So the uh, in that in when they see us, there's this one, uh, there's this one scene where this this kid who's been he was put in jail when he was a teenager. He was like 17. He was beaten, raped, repeatedly raped, beaten to an inch of his life in prison. He finally gets out. He's exonerated. Uh, But you see. And I, can, I was actually thinking of Soul's thesis when I when I watched this this uh, Netflix movie or series. Is you see that he's trying to reintegrate into regular life, but because he's been socialized in prison to be so touchy about honor and shame, and so touchy about like somebody just in any way kind of insulting him or dissing him that he needs to respond with this. Incredible overreaction. Force. Right. Yeah. And, but of course, that kind of way of being, it's, it's, uh, it makes sense in like in a dangerous, of, in a dangerous, dangerous environment. environment. Yeah. But in yeah. a civilized environment, this is, uh, incredibly like bad. It's, right. it's actually going to turn people off. It's going to make people like you're going to get fired from jobs. People aren't you know, going to want to be in a relationship with you that are not going to want to live with you. Um, So I think, like, I don't think you need recourse to, you know, the Scots-Irish touchy shepherds in the Scottish Highlands. I don't think you need reference to that. I think all you need is to look at uh, what happens to humans in different environments. So if you put a bunch of people, like I saw this in Baltimore, right? Like, I I was living there in poor black neighborhoods, uh, predominantly black uh, ghettos in Baltimore. The police basically don't show up. Yeah. Like you can call the police. You can call like I could call the police if, if you're in the wrong neighborhood in Baltimore. If You call the police and say there's somebody breaking into my house right now. Uh, he says he's going to rob me and like, you know, rape me. And he's got a gun. Um, they're not going to be there in two minutes. Yeah. They're not gonna be there in five minutes. You're lucky if they'll be there in an hour, two hours, and they're only gonna go into those neighborhoods if they can come in as an invading army with like a helicopter with lights with armored personnel vehicles, like they go in like an invading army. Like they won't go they won't go in without backup, put it that way. Right? But so a, if that's you true. have
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. if you have a situation where basically it's, it's, you know, like it's similarly in a maximum security prison, usually the ratio of guards to inmates is one to 200. So there's no way that they can be watching what's happening all the time. There's literally just not enough of them. Right. Right? And and the, the idea that somehow the video cameras are going to capture that stuff, that's, you have to
1: have somebody looking at the video cameras and there's not enough people to look at it. And there's lots of ways to get around that. Also, a lot of them are violent, disagreeable people. Anyway, Not all of them. I mean, some of them are just kids like that kid who got sent there. But you sort of have this mixture of the lack of Leviathan with just enough people who are predatory in the same place. Right. You know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But my my point
0: being is, is, I think if you take a bunch of humans and you put them in an environment where there is law and order and there's stability and peace. Well then, humans will res- most humans will respond yeah, in a I- certain way to that environment, and if you put them into an environment where there is no um, safety and security and peace, well, they'll respond. And then, of course, there's there's people who have been extremely socialized to um, to living in a peaceful society, who, like many progressives and libertarians, have illusions about what it would be like to, you know, if if you were to put them in like a, a dangerous neighborhood in Baltimore, they would just get their asses. They'd get in trouble so fast because they're so stupid and naive and they would take dumb choices and they wouldn't be street smart. Right. But then the flip side is if you have people who are, uh, have been,
1: yeah. who've
0: been totally social. Like I remember this one friend of my sister's, he was really into the whole punk scene, the squeegee punk scene, And we ran into him once on um uh, on the bus going back to Verdun. And like it was late, it was on like one of those night buses, like we were coming back from the bars and everything. And like and yeah. he he was saying he was already into heroin at that point and he was like he was starting to smell like a homeless person. And um and so my sister said to him, like, so you know how much longer are you going to do this? Because his pretense, this is bullshit, of course, his pretense was that he was doing sort of research to write a book on homeless life, and he wanted to write a novel, and it's bullshit, he's just an addict, but whatever. But he he kind of, he said this, this is a story he told his family and everything. Mm-hmm. And he I remember him saying, really made a big impression on me. He said, well, I'm going to stay for just a little bit longer, uh, but... I wanna I I don't wanna stay so long that I turn into an asshole. <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you're in that environment for too long, uh, you just don't know how to switch out of that gear. So you're always right. thinking about uh people stealing your wallet or stealing your bag or stealing your stuff, or you just have to be on edge all the time. And you're always sort of thinking about you know what are all the bad things that could happen in this situation how could you know how can i anticipate them and that uh, at a certain point if you're thinking like that all the time um it it undermines your relationships
1: with normal
0: civilized people well it also uses d-
1: up all your bandwidth right i mean you you can't yes. divert yeah. any of your energy to trying to figure out how to to, you know make it also you lose sight of the um accumulative benefits of you know t- spending 10 percent of your day doing x and over you know a two years time or whatever you're going to get a benefit from that you you don't have any time to do that you don't you don't understand how that can ever work because you're constantly just you know living for the moment to keep yourself from dying right something like that right? yeah so
0: oh absolutely it's uh, yeah. it takes up a lot of it takes up you know, a lot of time, but I, I find, I like, you know, our last guest that we had on uh, Joseph Henrik, his book, you know, the, the weirdest people in the world. And he argues that um, you can't really have capitalism and democracy and things like that. You can't, those things are not going to work unless you first have a particular kind of psychology right? and you have to, you have to first kind of break down people's tribalism and people's connection to uh to their their kin and you have to you have to break people down more into nuclear families and individuals and then that's when they can actually you know they can work in these systems more because if they if they're still in that hyper tribal mode which identity politics seems to be Reviving, reviving in a big way, um, that it it it, it kind of it causes all of these other systems to not work properly, because rather than you know the the, one of the examples he gives is he says uh, if you have people that are very very tribal, uh, well they're going to give the contract or they're going to give their business to somebody who's a member of their group, even if that person is. Charging more for a shittier product, like they'll give that person the business because they, you know, keep it all in the family, so to speak, right? And so, because they're doing that, they're rewarding uh, businesses that are actually, really, should probably fail, and um, and they're creating kind of inefficiencies and in the in the market. So markets don't work very well in places where people
1: are very tribal.
0: That's yeah. his, uh, his sort of point, right?
1: There also seems to be, I mean, you mentioned uh, capitalism, democracy, and, and markets, and so on. These are all sort of independent from the other. Like, democracy is a separate thing that developed, that took longer to develop, right? Like, it's like if you just this book I was reading by Sol today, he was talking about oh, in the United Kingdom how they gradually managed to bring the constituent elements, you know, that even Scotland itself was some divided, right, between the the highlands and lowlands. And they managed to bring it together and and put the stability exactly what you're talking about, right, so gradually suppress these tribal conflicts and people could, you know, ensure stability. And also changing the the cultural elements would change over time as well because of all that. But democracy did not come like the general franchise until way later in the 19th century, right? wonder... Amy Chua has mentioned this before that when you democratize a place that has all these tribal elements without having you know it's natural to vote in a sort of you know tribalist way for you know like that's just what else would you do right that's uh, yeah. you know, and so you wonder it's not clear that democracy is something i mean I, like I'm, I'm obviously i'm in favor of democracy i think it's the you know the the, the worst system except for all the others and all that stuff but it's not clear. Democracy also has a system of incentives that can be easily perverted and they can be perverted over time. It's not clear how to solve that problem, right? Because now we see, you mentioned the identity politics thing, right? We're starting to see this type of tribalism enter into our political system to some extent. Yeah. It always existed there to some degree. I mean, you know, you have seen you posting about this, you know, there's always been some uh, element of this in Canada, you know, the governor general, for example, switches back and forth between uh, a a Francophone and an Anglophone stuff like that. So maybe things like that can be in place that can help it, you know, help bring some sort of unity to some extent, if you have a, um, to to a certain degree, you know, but, but when it takes over, you're talking about, what I'm hearing you say is when the tribalism takes over to the point where it's like, I'm in my group and we're going to do everything we can to get our people to have the contracts and control the state and do the whole system. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it Solve ends, that problem, you know, no, there's not. I mean, I would just to, to return to what you said just before the, the link between that, I would say between democracy and, and capitalism and free markets and all that stuff. I, I like the way that, Uh, Yuval Noah Harari sort of unifies those things. And he says, actually, what what unites them is they're all sort of, they spoke off of uh, what he calls uh, liberal humanism. Right, so he says liberal humanism uh, is, he looks at it as a religion. um, And he says that it's a religion that says that ultimate authority is to be found not in God or in some sacred text or in, something like that but the ultimate authority is to be found in the individual in uh, the individual's sort of preferences and will and so um you know so many things like from our society like democracy as we conceive of it is predicated and so will talk about this is predicated on the idea that um, people know um, on in the aggregate not all of them individually but on average, people know what's good for them better than experts do. So people know what to spend their money on better than experts do. People know what to invest in better than, you know, other people do than the government does. or And, people, and so you should trust people. Uh, you give people the vote because you believe that the citizenry, on average, is reasonable and decent and smart, and they know what's good for them. Um, and that—that's kind of the assumption, right? Now you have lots of people, uh, whether it's the you know what Thomas Sowell calls the the anointed, um, who believes that uh, basically that people are idiots, and that yeah. experts should decide um, what you know what is what is good for people. That experts now, what I find, you know, to to a large extent, I I agree with that, and I think he's. He's definitely onto something. I just don't know how. Once again, I don't know how he squares that with his um, his talk about economics. Because when it comes to the subject of economics, he sounds exactly like one of the anointed. He's constantly talking about how the idiots don't understand yeah. economics, yeah. and like only people who are economically literate. Which you know, when you when you scratch the surface, I I'm friends with a number of economists of various left-wing right-wing centrist, libertarian and people who have PhDs in economics and almost without exception they've told me that uh, Thomas Sowell is a great thinker but on economics he's he has a pretty narrow view of economics and so it's sort of like uh, like an evangelical Christian telling me like you need religion, right? They don't mean religion in general. They mean evangelical Protestant Christianity, right? They don't mean, and so when he says, like, people are economically illiterate, usually what he actually means by that is not agreeing with my view of economics,
1: right?
0: Which is not, like, his view of economics is not in any way the prevailing view, even among classical economists, like his, his view is seen as being quite University of Chicago, quite um, you know, fundamentalist.
1: I think in terms of his views on economics, he economics has become much more scientific. This is my sort of outsider's understanding. It's become much more, you know, sort of looking at algorithms things like this and mathematical models and things like that, and also creating experiments, right? So you create these sort of lab experiments and you run them. Thomas Sowell doesn't really do that. He seems, if, if you read Adam Smith, he seems to use Adam Smith's model as the way of orienting himself in it, much as he has a theory, like you say, his belief that the law of supply and demand is likely to prevail over, you know, intervention, let's say, Right. And then he takes a look at the world and he tries to see instances where that might be true or not true and gather evidence from everything from novels to, you know, Adam Smith did pretty much the same thing in The Wealth of Nations because there was no economics, you know, there were no papers to go and dig up the experiments that people had run or whatever, right? There was, you know, he was the first one to do it. So I think that souls economics is a kind of older style of economics, I think. That's my impression. I don't know. I'm I'm very much a hobbyist of economics. It's not my field. I'm a, you know, I have a different set of, uh, you know, I studied different things. Um, You know, my my background uh, is different from that. But like I said, I, I became an amateur at it after the financial crisis. And that's my view. He seems to have this almost like a holistic view of how to view things. And I don't know. How? Yeah, I,
0: I think I think my problem my problem in general with his the way that he deals with things like government intervention and with markets is that he tends to and he, it's funny because I, I was talking to uh, the other day to uh, Jacob Jacob Levy about this who is a political theorist um, at McGill and he's he he was really I mean, he's a, very, you know, he's a libertarian and he was a big fan of Thomas Sowell when he was younger and uh, and Ayn Rand and all of that stuff. And And he said, yeah, he goes, like, I, I still, like, I learned a great deal from him. But he said that the irony of Thomas Sowell is that he's this guy who is, you know, he rails against people who oversimplify a great deal. And mm-hmm. his critique of people, oversimplifying things is excellent but then he goes on to oversimplify like crazy and it's like, it's like dude like why don't you like you know doctor heal that like, physician heal myself like so for instance one thing that I found annoying in um especially in his book uh, the quest for cosmic justice where he he's sort of wherever he's talking about how evil government intervention is he Always looks to, uh, to let's say like China under Mao or Soviet Union under Stalin or like you know, Mussolini. He looks to these like horrible, like examples which were horrible, no doubt. Like and he and so all government intervention. This classic example of a slippery slope argument. All government intervention naturally leads to this horrific outcome. And then when he's talking about uh, business and free markets, he tends to sort of rely on a very idealized view of of business and of the economy. Which, like I, you know, like I said in that sort of thread where we were discussing this, like it, it seems like it applies perfectly well to adapt, right, to the economy of adapt. Absolutely, like, and to small businesses and maybe even medium sized businesses, but. His analysis just doesn't, doesn't make sense if you're trying to explain Amazon or Google or Facebook, these giant organizations that have, have the, the power to you know, manipulate. Like there's more, there are more lobbyists right now in Washington, D.C., um, representing Facebook than there are members in both houses of Congress combined. These are all people that are making a minimum of one hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars a year um, to lobby on behalf of. Like that is when you're wielding that when you have that many smart, highly motivated people um, working towards a particular end. Like that's not a they can distort the market in all sorts of you know amazing ways, and that's not that's not sort of. What Adam Smith. That's not what Adam Smith had in mind. Adam Smith
1: hated big, huge businesses like that. If you read his books, he talked about the East India Company with the most exactly on the terms that you're talking about, how they had distorted British government policy and everything. There's an economist called Mike Munger who talks about, this gets back to what I was saying before about how institutions, as they get bigger, Mike, he talks about how any business, as it gets bigger, It, you know, it's when it makes more investments as it gets bigger. Initially, it sort of, you know, diversifies, you know, opens up other sectors and spends money on research and development and everything. Then it reaches a point where every dollar it spends will get a better return from trying to influence government. It does get back to government control, right? They start investing. This is what the social media companies are trying to do they're trying to influence the state. So the state can use the awesome power of the, you know, the, the you know, the, the, monopoly on violence. Let's say, right? That's the definition of a state, right? So they're trying to. I mean, most of what I understand, little I understand about the big social media companies is they seem to want some form of regulation. And this is one of these things that's kind of like a flare, right? When you see a company that is in an industry and they want the government to regulate that industry, that's kind of like a red flag. Like, why would they want? rules. Well, the reason is because they want to set the rules up in such a way so that they can exclude competitors from getting into the market, right? So I don't really see anything incompatible with so, like, the, you know, you can, Adam Smith was just, you know, vicious against the Dutch East India Company. He was very complimentary about the Hudson Bay Company. There's a long section of his book. I don't know if you've read The Wealth of Nations. I have. I have. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this part. There's a long section where he went through about how the books were really well kept, and they were sort of careful. They never went and went to the government for loans or anything like that. Like they were, re- and the, part of the reason for that is that it was a relatively small company, a poor part of the world, right? The East India Company was this behemoth that was dealing with the sort of the riches of the world at that time, right? Yeah and all that stuff from india that was this huge you know sort of attracted the uh the 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 more venal elements that are going to try and and, you know uh, so i don't really see i mean i i understand your point about the um you know the way that he switches back and forth from you know from hating on the anointed to becoming kind of like an anointed i think is that's kind of how i heard i don't know if that's i don't want to caricature what you were saying but I can totally get that, but i don't really see a contradiction in in the laissez faire like like in the sense that it still comes back to the idea that there you know if you believe there has to be a state, what should that state do, and then if you're an entity and you can influence that state in your favor if you 're big enough to do that, maybe you're going to do that right and i don't think that i don't think that's a good thing, but i don't think it contradicts the idea that the best way for things to play out over time is to let them be, right? Whenever there's, for me, there are a few exceptions where the government has to be involved, right? One, because that's really the core question, right? Where should the government intervene in the economy and where should it let, you know, you can make a case for a few social things, like maybe education to some extent, at least for the dispersion of money, You know, there's a different question about how that money could be spent. You know, in Sweden, they have vouchers and things like that. That's a good education system. Healthcare to some extent, some some control, to some extent, maybe. Definitely defense, right? National defense and internal security, I think, is generally better off when you have a a Leviathan. And then there's a few strange exceptions, like the, the distribution of electrical power, right? I've been thinking for years and years with my classical liberal brain trying to come up with the way that, you know, Hydro-Quebec could function better if it were a bunch of different companies. And I just can't figure out how it would work, you know, because everything I've seen in other cases where they've tried to do that has usually ended up in a, you know, kind of a disastrous, um, you have a kind of problem there with the, you know, distribution of things. Anyway, that's, but apart from that, I don't, you know, when it comes to like the, could, could bring it back to the Facebook and Amazon and all those things. If you just wait long enough, if you have a dynamic system, right? Those, you know, it's likely that if we don't do anything with Facebook and Twitter and all these companies, that in twenty or thirty years' time, there's going to be some other big thing. Do you remember when Microsoft was going to take over the world? In the 1990s, it was this enormous thing in Europe. They regulated it. You know, oh, this is, you know, they're embedding it on the computers and people, you know, they're not being given a real choice. And that was all true, right, for the time. Mm-hmm. Except that you, if you just allow the, the dynamism to continue functioning, someone's going to come up with something else that's going to make whatever that is not as important anyway in enough time. It's almost always the case, right? If you don't intervene too much, right? If you yeah. it, into a certain extent, you know, you get in there, start mucking around, you can get it to seize and you can say, okay, this is our system now. And you get stuck with that, you know, what that system is. A good example of this from what I, uh, little I understand about it was the regulation of airwaves that really slowed down innovation, um, in the, in the 20th century that anyway, that's a, so.
0: well, I think very often what happens, and if you look at the Microsoft is a good example of this, but there's many examples like this. If you look at the history of a lot of these like very, very successful organizations and, that are presented as like examples of why the free market is so amazing, you'll usually find that the, um, the initial technology was uh, produced with government money it was percent. like it was taxpayers' you money percent. that yeah, you came percent. up with the technology and invested huge amounts of money in the the technology and created, and then somebody sort of uh, found a way to to make money off of it and went off and made money with it. I have no problem with that. I think you know more power to you. But like, but then to turn around, it seems like really, really ungrateful and shitty to turn around and like act as if. Oh, I'm a self-made man. Like I just sort of came up with this off the top of my head. Like, no, you fucking didn't. Like, you, you basically stole some technology from the big corporation you were working for. You were working for IBM, and you you stole some of their tech, and you made a lot of money off of it. Or you, you had, uh, you took stuff that was produced by public money, and then it's the it's the public that has you know we have created this huge infrastructure and the roads and all the things that make it possible for you to like produce your goods and services and get them to, to market. Like, and now you're going to act like somehow you're, it, it reminds me very much of like a certain kind of guy. And I was totally this guy. Um, the certain kind of guy was into Nietzsche and Ayn Rand as a teenager. And it's like this sort of usually a guy, not always, uh, who's just like, yeah, don't tell me what to do, mom. <laughs> I want to do it. Like and this, this, this attitude of, I just, I, I'm like a mushroom. I just emerged overnight as a fully grown adult. And I'm, you know, I've completely made my life and I deserve everything I have. And, and not recognizing that you know, people for years, usually women like wiped your ass fed you taught you how to read yeah. you went to school like you got so much help and so much love from so many people and to just turn and eventually you'll be old and fucked up and you'll have to like get your ass get your diapers changed again and people will be waiting on you until you die and so to at the peak of your strengths when things so many things have come together to make the civilization that you live in to create the institutions, to sort of act as if you are just apart from all of these things and like i don't need any of these things and i don't fucking owe you anything you know this is all mine that it just seems to be like in poor taste you know? well, the,
1: yeah i i totally agree one of the best examples i've heard of that is is when you take a totally you know, meritocratic uh structure like like basketball let's say right so you have some guy who worked his way up out of poor neighborhood he's this amazing basketball player it's like the fact of him having that opportunity the fact that he was lucky enough to be born in a time and in a place where he could exercise that skill and be paid for that is just astoundingly lucky right and then you know then you go into a bunch of other things he was lucky to be tall and he was lucky to have the right type of environment where he could go and practice all the time or something like, you know, and all these different things, any, any person who's in a, you know, who's successful in life has had all of what you're talking about. There's no question about that. Right. But they also have to do, you know, the 10,000 hours, right. The famous, right. Uh And it's, it's, it's interesting how, I think that a lot of just facing life is, you know for young people is hard to just go out and start doing things because you're afraid of failing right you know uh-huh. I, as a younger person right it was just hard for me to just go out and go, what am I going to do you know I did what I was going to do and I was and you're sort of paralyzed by fear right so if you're told if you're kind of told oh no you know uh that guy who made all that money he's no better than you and you know it's kind of like that's going to help that much right it's kind of like you want people to say i'm not as good as i can be right so maybe if i work really hard maybe if i try and be like you know steve jobs or i don't know james brown or who knows who right if i try and be like that maybe i will right yeah uh, i don't know if that it's it's more like i think the the problem there about the self-made man is i, I totally understand that the person was also made by society but he, they weren't entirely made by society too. They are exceptional in some way, right? Any person who is successful in life has something exceptional about them,
0: right? I think, I don't know. It's just, I, I like what Thomas Sowell says when where he talks about this, where he says that um, you know, if you grow up in an incredibly kind of messed up environment where you're surrounded by lots of dysfunction and you're neglected and you're abused, maybe you have like lead in your water and so you've like it you know reduced your IQ and stuff like that. For somebody like that, for them just to just to grow up to being like a decent person who's not a criminal who is doesn't an amazing earn, achievement who is an yeah. amazing achievement. Yeah. Like that person's yeah. very exceptional, but you would anybody who doesn't know the specifics of their case wouldn't realize what a miracle that yeah. person is. You know, and then meanwhile a somebody who Somebody who like grows up with Privilege. Uh, every every advantage in the book, and they they yeah. do really really well. If they end up like being, I don't know, an English prophet McGill, maybe that's like you know actually kind of underwhelming c- considering yeah. like all the uh, the advantages. But but no, when I when I'm talking about the the sort of the Nietzsche Randian uh, rugged, I'm talking about like. I've met I've met a, a fair number of people in my life. I've got one guy in particular I'm thinking of who, like, he inherited in his mid twenties, um, like a, a lot of money, like like we're talking like uh, over twenty million dollars, right? And he's he is like one of the most hardcore uh, devotees of Nietzsche and Ayn Rand and stuff like that. And the guy's never worked a day in his life. Like at all, <laughs> he's never, and yet he's always lecturing and posting stuff about how, yeah lazy people need to get a job and stop looking for handouts and stop looking at dude, like you know, I feel like you know Dave Chappelle like slow your roll, man, like look like, seriously, like you you know you you haven't got to where you are by hard work, like your father worked really hard and made a lot of money and
1: left it to his yeah. kids, you know, but. I mean, the, the, the way people end up, I mean, who is it? Coleman Hughes was saying, I was listening to interview with him the other day. He was talking about how James Baldwin and Thomas Sowell grew up in the same neighborhood, same time. But I guess James Baldwin is another one of these, you know, these lucky few. And they went, I, I think they may have gone to the same school, right? I'm not sure. Wow. I'm not sure about, you'd have to, someone could fact check me on that. But anyway, at the same time, and look at their politics were, you know, just like night and day. Right? They ended up with, and they, they had a, you know, they're both African Americans and, you know, from the same similar background, time and place and whatnot. And look at the divergence there. I mean, so just the way that people end up with, if someone ends up with a Randian, you know, I tend to be, you know, I'm, I don't know about Ayn Rand, I've read any for books. My brother says, oh, yeah, you have to read Ayn Rand. She's great for books. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I tend to be in the more sort of classical liberal leaning libertarian bent, right? Uh, someone else who I grew up with, other people they have different views. People I'm very close with have very different political outlooks and so on than I do. And I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't, if people have that view and maybe it's undeserved, if that person you're talking, I don't know who you're talking about, but I mean, if, if that, like, you know, I, I don't really see how that negates the main point about what, you know, the, the laissez-faire view if you believe in it, right? I don't, I'm not sure how to, if that makes sense. It doesn't, I'm not seeing the connection exactly. Well, the,
0: the connection for me is that
1: I, I'm, you know, once again, is
0: my, my central issue with souls. Is I love what he says about the tragic vision. I feel like, um, you know, I, I was very much affected in my twenties by reading St. Augustine, and his his vision, he he's kind of the, I would say probably the most profound exponent of the tragic vision that Sowell is talking about is uh, is in St Augustine. You can find it in the City of God and in other writings of his. But he basically says that um, we he has a, a religious a religious explanation for it, but you don't need. You don't need his religious explanation in order to find his worldview insightful so he says that um, there are basic flaws in human nature that cannot be um, that cannot be remedied ever we can just sort of like uh, it's the difference between problems and, and conditions right if you have a condition you just try and manage the symptoms there's no solution for the condition like if you have an uncurable disease then we don't try and get rid of it totally because we can't. So we just manage the symptoms, right? So, uh, and problems have solutions, right? So you try and, and that's very central to Augustine and to Sol that, um, that a lot of what progressives, a lot of what the anointed referred to as social problems are actually social conditions. Yeah, They're not problems. Point. They don't have, there's no Permanent. There's, no, fix them, there's no at the moment. There's no permanent solution to the problem of scarcity. There's yeah. always like more demand than supply. There's always more things that we want to do with our time than time we have. There's yeah. always more, and so on and so forth. So because of those limitations on existence and on, we have to sort of work with these limitations uh, as best we can. So I like I like all of that. I just find that that tragic vision uh, does not to my mind, doesn't mesh nicely with the vision of, of, of people sort of making decisions and being totally free and being responsible for oh, I see. It. And yeah. so I, I, for me, like that, the guy who's really into kind of freedom and Liberty and individualism and everybody gets what they deserve who inherited you know twenty million dollars in his mid twenties like he um he it doesn't seem to me that he is adequately recognizing how much he's benefited now i'm not I'm not into like I'm not saying people have to be guilty I'm not saying they have to give their money up to the poor or anything like that Those are different questions, but I do think my mom used to say all the time when we were kids, and i i I repeat this. Know, repeated to my own kids like a mantra. You know, to whom much is given, much is required. So if you are, if there's a little old lady who's you know, who's like, uh, you
1: know, similar to the to the Marxist a little bit. I don't, you know, the to each according to his ability. Is that is that the uh,
0: it's it's similar. similar I mean, they they,
1: they they perverted it horribly.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I'm talking about it more in the kind of Judeo-Christian sense where it's just. If you've been given a lot of strength, or you have a lot of strength at this point in your life, well, use that strength for to 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 do good, do good stuff like to defend people that are being fucked over by stronger people who can't defend themselves, than to like help old ladies across the street because you know when you're a little baby, you're you can't help people like that, and when you're a little old guy yourself, you can't help people like that, so. If you have a lot of resources, whether it be uh, physical health, mental health, money, uh, smarts, like use your stuff to as much as possible. Use that to like help other people and to give back.
1: Right. Well, many but many if, people do. Right. It's important to remember that. Charity is very common. I mean, you know, and you can also, another thing, I think Sol talks about this, about how the introduction of where the state takes care of, you know, is that you see a reduction in people helping out. For the obvious reason that, you know, if you're if you're a wealthy person in a society that has a functional welfare, say, wow, you know, the government's taking care of are they're, they're taxing me anyway. So, you know, I think that you can divide just to I wanted to come back to your point there about the um the to each, each according to his I, I forget how your mother phrased it, it was much more uh, elegant, I think. But um in any case, it's kind of like you can divide that behavior between just small group behaviors. So if you're with your friends and your family and you're doing everything you can in your job, let's say, right, you know, you can actually do a lot in that way, right? But when you get into a group scale of the world or even not even the world but just you know the the entire city of montreal or something like that you know problems go back let's say or something how much can i actually do to help the people who have x problem right i i don't know how to do that i don't know how to do that without making their lives worse because i don't know enough about them right i don't you know um i don't know if that makes any sense you can divide and is it is it a good idea to force me to give up my money to go and help those people maybe that's that's the that's the statist idea right that we will tax you we'll take your money away and then we'll create you know a, a system you know where people with drug problems go or something have like a you know treatment program or something to help people with addiction or something like that right that makes some sort of sense except that the, then you get into the incentives problem again you disincentivize individuals from doing that when you socialize into the state this is I mean, this is well-documented. Charity has gone way down as a proportion since the 19th century. Um, yeah. But if you, but I mean, I, I totally recognize that there's, there's trade-offs and they're
0: not all pleasant, but if you it look be at, better. Yeah,
1: it could be uh,
0: if you look at like, for instance, um, when I was, when I was uh, at, at Hopkins in Baltimore, I remember my, my wife who I met, I met Annalisa there and she she was studying with this guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he's a famous social scientist. And he had actually um, studied specifically orphanages and how they dealt with uh, with orphans and stuff like that. And he looked at how it, was, how it was dealt with by charities, by like the Catholic Church and by various kinds of charities. And he looked at that in the 18th century and the 19th century. And then he looked at what happened when kind of... The state took over that stuff and he kind of does a, a cost benefit analysis and he looks at how much people gave to charity and how much people to try. And, and then he looks at, you know, what were the life chances of the, how, how likely were the kids to be abused, uh, neglected? Uh, how likely were they to live to be five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old? And he basically shows that like he does a comparison of six different countries and how the, the switch from charity to uh, to welfare to the state doing it
1: and, and he says
0: else, right? and he says in every instance on every single indicator, um the results were way way better when the state took over doing that however, uh what they created was human, and so it still sucked in various ways, and it kind of sucks to be an orphan, no matter who's you know, know. like and, but he says, on in every possible way, it was a huge step up to have this um, taken care of by the state rather than. And it also, oh, by the other thing he says, is it actually was cheaper too. It ended up being cheaper. So, in the same way that, like, uh, you know, the look at the American healthcare system, they spend a massive amount of money on healthcare and they don't get. A terribly i mean it's the number one reason people declare bankruptcy right now is uh, medical bills right that it's they pay a huge amount of money and i remember when we lived down there it's unbelievable like the, yeah your taxes are less but the amount of money that you spend on your your insurance every month it's like every paycheck and then when something actually goes wrong uh, you like the premiums are are huge. Like yeah. it's uh, so. It, it, the the idea that is,
1: somehow the free market or charity can do it better. No. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the one thing I would say about that is that very often there's these things are impossible to prove one way or another. You can show that the things got better. I'm sure those are true. You can also show that charity giving went down. You can also show as a percentage of income. How could you? I'm not sure how you could disentangle the general. Growth, right? From that as well, right? Because you know, it's it's kind of like I mean, Thomas. Just to bring it back to Thomas Sowell, right? He talks about how the general view of African Americans is that sort of the emancipation, let's say, from you know the started in the, with the with the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and the Great Society. But he documents how this the social rise of, of blacks from in the 20th century, just like in income and literacy and all these other factors was sort of rocketing upward for the first half of the 20th century, right? And then it actually slows down with those other things. It actually levels Mm -hmm. off and it's still rising. But um, see, what I'm trying to say there is, how do we know when, when we say we got better results when we took over from religious institutions, how do we know that those better results weren't just part of trends that were moving forward anyway, just because the society was richer and richer and richer over time? How do we know? I, I don't know. I imagine it's more efficient to have sort of one system like that than to have you know a whole bunch of churches all... You know, it's also better to have one system than to have it be segregated by your ethnicity. So, if you're Jewish, you know, you go to a Jewish hospital, and if you're, you know, this that's how it used to be, right? The, the charities used uh-huh. to be based on, um, you know, uh, your your uh, religious uh, affiliation, right? So the so the you know the the Protestants and Jews had better hospitals, and the Catholics had worse ones, right? You know, that was so you have that problem, right? But I just don't know. And that's very interesting about Annalisa's feature. I guess it was. I just don't know how much of that could be disentangled from general rise anyway, economically, right? You know, when you see those, res- you know, people have been better off for the last several hundred years all over the place, right? And so you get this problem. People say, well, you know, then the government took over and things got better. It's like, yeah, well... That's true. Except, How do we know what would have happened if we had just sort of allowed it to organize itself in a different way or something? I don't know. You know, it's very hard to know. We can't turn around and run those. But what we can do is there are natural experiments of government intervention versus non-government intervention, right? So like less or more of those institutions and we can see differences there. I live, I used to live in South Korea. I don't know if you know this about me, but I lived there for a couple of years and, um, I lived within walking distance of the, the DMZ, right? So I used to be able to hike up the hill behind my house. It was—I remember standing up there and looking at the South Korean side, and there were all these sort of rice paddies, and the, the hills were all covered in trees. You know, they were—they were trees. And then you look across the other side, and there was just completely barren, right? Um, so the, the, there, you have probably the closest thing to a natural experiment. So the, on the northern side. The people were so desperately poor because of overintervention. Let's say, right—that's sort of an extreme case of over, you know, along with other problems. That they, you know, they get cold in the winter. So what do they do? They go, they go, and they chop down the trees. They can't trade effectively with the rest of the world because of the choice of the political system. So they can't import. They don't have enough money to import, you know, things like petroleum and stuff to run in their stoves, right? Um, I don't know. I, I'm just that's. I'd be curious to learn more about that. Um, those studies and those things, you know, cause I'm not sure. I mean, cause they're, they're really, I'm not necessarily saying that the government should not be involved in those things and that we should just take the government away from orphanages and allow, you know, I, I don't know what a solution is for, uh, you could call that a condition, right? Something like an orphanage is sort of like a societal condition. You're probably never going to get rid of some kids who are going to end up needing some care from the old village, let's say, right. You probably, uh-huh i, was be some I can't, I can't
0: think doing. of um, right. i can't think of any natural off the top of my head i can't think of any natural experiments which would which which would be would be able, to, confirm would, would be be able to prove what i the, the case yeah. I was just making I can think of natural experiments that prove definitively that um things like um, all sorts of uh manufactured goods and agriculture do way way better when they're when government stays out of it for the most part i mean right. that there's so many examples of that i mean like, the one like that jumps to mind immediately is look at zimbabwe and like that had this like incredibly uh flourishing agricultural sector where they were just making tons of money they had plenty of food to feed themselves and to feed you know half of africa and like export tons of stuff and then as soon as the government Takes over and says, "Oh, we're going to bring Master. social justice. We're going to bring social justice to this sector." And they, yeah. which, which of course, as it very often does, just means putting my cronies in power, right? So, and they put all these people <laughs> that didn't know anything about farming and didn't know anything about the
1: international. Yeah, Even if very, they yeah. weren't their friends, if they were just let's say they just randomly chose Zim, black Zimbabweans and said, you know, this farm owned by white people, the chances are that guy doesn't know how to do what the white farmer knows how to do, right? It's yeah. just learn how to do. This is the other thing about these the middlemen minorities. This is a problem all over the world. There's This idea that if you're running a business where, say, you're lending money or you're doing something like that, then you're not really doing anything. You're just extracting from all the sort of hard working farmers and people in the factories with their hammers and doing, you know, and all this stuff. It's, I'm, I'm caricaturing it, of course, but it's stark misunderstanding that the people who are performing financial services, for example, are doing, they're, they, they have an enormous amount of skill and they know what they're doing and they know how to assess risk and where to put the capital and how to, you know, and with you, the, every case, those natural experiments are the most tragic, right? I mean, you're talking about, Um, What was that one in Uganda, too, where they went after the, um, I think it was... South Asians. They went after the South Asians, and you just see a total right? You see, and this brings up one funny thing that Stoll mentions. He talks about the ethnic, not funny humorous, but just interesting to get back to maybe a a mistake of his, or at least, you know, ideological, is he talks about the ethnic cleansing of Germans from uh, from Eastern Europe, which is one of these things that not many people know about, but after World War II, there was... um, you know, there have been minorities of Germans throughout Central and Eastern Europe for many centuries, right? From the Oh, yeah. Deutsche going back to the Middle Ages. Going Asia. back, way back to the Middle Ages, right? And in some cases, they were, you know, they were relatively small in number, like in Russia. In other cases, I mean, in Czechoslovakia, they were uh, three million, right? So the, the famous Benes decrees cleansed the country of, the, in fact, the the German minority is um this is another country i happen to live in as well it's interesting was slovakia but they the, the german minority is the reason why the czechs and slovaks originally formed a political union was because i had a guy tell me once when i was in the czech republic how it, when they formed czechoslovakia in 1919 they they had you know this sort of like uh, if they had made just the czech republic they would have been like 50 50 german czech right so uh-huh. there's Boy, this is going to be a really big problem politically because they're already they run all the factories and they own all the capital and everything, and all this stuff. So, they created this union with Slovakia, who they, you know, that they and then they sort of had it be sort of a maybe a 30% minority. But in any case, just to get back to this example of Seoul, he, they did the ethnic cleansing after, after World War II. They had an excuse in all these societies to go after these Germans who were, you know, socially higher up the ladder and so on. They threw them out. Um, you know, there's something like 12 million people moved. But Seoul at one point, one of his books, he said that this was one of the reasons why the economy collapsed in Czechoslovakia, you know, and it went, you know, and it all this stuff. He gave all these statistics about how the, you know, the industrial output went down. He's giving all these numbers and statistics, which are all true. And then, you know, he connects it to when the Germans were all thrown out, 3 million people. They, they went to, you know, force them to go to Germany. And many of them had never even been there and all this stuff. It's all true. But he neglects to mention something really important: was that at the same time a socialist um, government was established. At exactly the same time that the Benesh decrees come into effect, right? So, uh-huh. surprised that he wouldn't at least mention it as a footnote, because obviously that had a, a you know a dampening effect on exchange as well, right? The government takeover of all the industries and the uh, you know. But uh, I guess you chalk that up to I don't know if that's an ideological mistake. I don't know, or you know, how much of it is true. Like, looked at that case, right? How much yeah. Czechoslovak economic total disaster from 1945 to 1975 was because of the socialism that was installed, and how much of it was the Germans leaving? Because that must have been something, right? They left and they took as much. Of, well, they, took, they took all of their human capital with them that is the, in their brains they you know to take the Malcolm Gladwell thing right they had all those skills and everything and they were left from the country and maybe they stole all their factories and all that stuff so they you know couldn't leave with that but how much of it was one how much of it was the other it's a good question it's
0: hard to it's hard to tell I thought I thought I would just finish our, our conversation with sort of just maybe if both of us could uh, uh say you know two of the things that we've learned from uh from Thomas Sowell like the, i I was I'll, I'll sort of start off I one of the things that I remember I think this is probably the first thing that I read in Sowell where I was like wow this guy is, I'm gonna learn a lot from this guy This is when he he talked about I mean and there's many examples of this but this is one that like jumps to mind is when he talks about um his critique of the concept of income distribution. And he says, like, you know, uh, there's these ways in which we talk about things which um, sort of stack the deck in favor of one c- conclusion, you know, but so that it, it seems like you're having like a, an open conversation about something, but you've actually, it's you've stacked the deck in advance. And so he says, like, when we talk about income distribution, it sounds as if like all the money is put in a big pile, and then we decide yeah. like how to like share it out. And that if there's there's big ma- amounts of inequality, that it's it's necessarily because we didn't share it out evenly or or equitably. That we have to. And he says like this is just not how it actually happens. You know, most of the money that people have was put in their pocket. Voluntarily, because right. they they were giving somebody something like that service or good that that person wanted Excited. and so they they voluntarily took their wallet out and handed them some money or a card, and like it it wasn't so the idea that somehow okay well we need to have some you know government organization that steps in and kind of makes sure that we share out the stuff you know, more fairly, like, that is not at all how it
1: happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's a great, that's a great one. But one thing I would say is, um, he's been saying for a very, very long time, you know, going back to, I've, I've you know, read books and seen interviews with him from like 70s and 80s, that this strange idea that if you have, you know, 23% of Canada's population is French-Canadian, so therefore there must be you know, 23% of carpenters and 23% of lawyers and 20, you know, or something like that. In other words, if you just take the population of a given society and you cut it into different groups and they all must be equally represented, that idea, if you think about it, is very strange. And there's nowhere in the world where that ever um, shaken out that way. It has never come out. You know, he talks about how he went around the world looking at different countries and he never found a society where, there was a different composition of ethnic groups and they all had equal representation in every single field, right? So just, I mean, you could get into a long discussion there too, like, is that just or unjust? And that's not really the point. It's more, why do they shake out differently? Why do some people in their homes and communities and families and so on get more interested in doing different things, right? Because we know that interest is the main driver of why people get better at things Right, what you like doing when you're ten and fifteen and so on years old—that you know that you spend more time doing—that's what you tend to get better at. That you tend to excel at in your life generally, right? We, don't want yeah, families and different peoples to do that, right? We don't, right? I agree that
0: th- that definitely, you know, everywhere in the world today and in, in human history, there's been inequalities of outcome for sure, and people don't all end up. But I also think that. Um, the the desire to try and make our ruling uh, institutions to to make them more sort of representative I don't think that is something new like you know we, we've talked about this with regards to like Canada and the history of Canada how they they always tried to sort of make sure that there was a good mix of francophones and anglophones in the cabinet in various kind of positions of power, because they recognize that, okay, if it's nothing but francophones in the federal government in high Mm -hmm. positions for 20 years, well, guess what? Pretty soon. the English Canada are going to be like, this is (laughs) bullshit. Like we're not being, we're clearly, this is clearly a system that is rigged in favor of like, uh, the Francophone elites, so we're out of here. Let's like separate, right? And uh, all countries and and even down to like families and religious uh, have ways of trying to become uh to be more so you know the example of like you know this guy going to a libertarian conference and they try and like put everybody who's like a woman and minority like, like up on the stage to make yeah. it look more that is not new to this historical period. I mean the Roman Empire it was expanding. They very self consciously included, as they were expanding, they opened up citizenship to people who were not ethnically uh, Italian, like from the Italian peninsula. They opened it up to people who were uh, like, had like, you know, tall, blonde, blue eyed uh, Germanic people. They opened it up to Gauls. They opened it up to East Asians, to people from North Africa. Like, And they specifically tried to put people from these outlying, newly conquered areas into positions of power precisely because uh, they, you know, not because they were, you know, kind of like proto-woke people who were trying to like celebrate our diversity. It's because they just understood that like you can't have legitimacy yeah. Of a big, whether it's the Montreal police or the Roman Empire or Canada or the United States, you can't have legitimacy if certain people are perceived as being
1: outsiders, con-
0: constantly like outside of power,
1: like not invited in on the party. But that's like, a power structure, though, right? That's not like, I mean, I was talking about just all, you know, like everything. So if you look at the number of, you know, jazz saxophonists or something like, like this idea, like, like now with this woke thing, we've got this thing, for example, with orchestras and stuff, right? And and things like that. And you think, I mean, it's like, I, I totally understand it from a political point of view for something like the police. I can, like, that's something that makes a lot of sense to me to say, okay, you know, if you have part of the city where you have higher crime and there's also an ethnic group that's more predominant in that part of the city, want to have more police just to make the people in that community don't not to feel like they're in a war with another ethnic group right so it's not like you know i lived in park extension for like 12 years and i remember the police and that you sort of felt like a like an outside occupying force it would be some you know french canadian guy would come in and nobody in the neighborhood was very few you know but I, i i just think that that idea to apply to say you know i don't know like lawyers or you know what i mean like it's it, if you just sort of take that as an axiomatic thing for all professions and, and trades and stuff and say that there should be this equal distribution or something i, I don't know that that is necessary and it, it's it actually might harm the way that those trades are functioned or you know how they work if it's applied in areas other than politics and the police you could probably name a few but I don't know what you Yeah, think. no, I, I I totally agree with that. Like when it, you know, there's certain things like obviously
0: law enforcement and politics where, you know, you those are two obvious examples where having uh being being perceived as being more kind of diverse and, and kind of representative of the population is is not just good from some sort of celebrate diversity abstract sense it's good just in terms of it makes it easier for you to do your job like you have legitimacy but yeah when it comes to like i don't know brain surgery or uh you know making like spaceships that are going to go to mars like i i just want i want like the best people in those jobs and i don't care if if a meritocratic system shakes out so that all the brain surgeons in Quebec end up being uh, i don 't know korean women um i don 't care like mm-hmm. if 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 they 're the best like brain surgeons that 's who I want operating on my brain um, i don 't want like somebody that you know some white irish guy that they hired for diversity <laughs> like yeah. i don't want i don't want that guy yeah okay you can have that guy for your brain surgery i want the korean check
1: who does it well like so um so where's yeah, the border it, there that's that's a difficult problem is you know where is it okay to do something for a political reason like a, like a good reason to try and bring a, a group or some set of people into your holiday, and where is it something where it's actually going to harm the quality of the service, or even harm the, the diversity of your system. If you're doing it to the point where you're alienating, it becomes a thing where people are are forced into thinking of themselves in these ethnic groups and how they have grievances one against the other. That's a very common soul point as well. That, uh, that might be my second point would be soul talks about how like, if you people are, if they're told that they should be you know that they're part of an ethnic group and they should focus on that and that group has been oppressed or whatever, right? Um, yeah. Often it's true. I mean, it's you know, it's uh, that doesn't ever help that those people advance in any way, right? Any people, right? Very rarely to think of yourself as a victim is probably the worst thing you can do. You know, a good example is if if you had a child that was handicapped, right? If you know people who have handicapped children, the one thing they do, the one thing they try and do is to instill the idea in that kid that they can do what they want to do. They can overcome this thing, you know, like, you know, the worst thing you could do is make them feel is to encourage them to feel sorry for themselves. They're there, you know, and they would have a good reason to feel sorry for themselves. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. can't walk or whatever. Right. But that's not going to help them. You know, I, I don't mean to compare handicapped people with, you know, racial minorities or something like that, but you, you can think of it in those terms, right. That you should, we should do everything we can to send the message to people that they can do better than whatever they're doing now, right. Regardless of the, you know, the, where they come from. I, th- I think that's a good idea, but I don't know, maybe not. Well,
0: that's a, that's a, a nice hopeful place to, to finish on. <laughs> anyway, this has been absolutely fascinating. I think we we may have to uh, do like a part two because there's just yeah. so much more like we, we're already like two and a half hours in and I have like, <laughs> I, like I have a bad. list of so many other things that I wanted I because mean, Thomas Sowell is just such a uh, such a rich, uh, interesting source, you know, like he's uh, a fantastic stuff.
1: I, I'd, but, I, like, I, I'd like to just quickly thank you, too. because uh, This has been uh, I, like I've really appreciated the conversation the opportunity to talk about soul as well is interesting. I use him a lot in my classes as well. I don't know some of his work and I agree. I've got a whole list of things (laughs) I do not even get to here that, you know, we could cover at a, at another time. So,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess the the short version I would say an answer to your question about where is the border. um, I, I'm not exactly, there's some extreme cases like law enforcement and, and politics on one side and then you know brain surgery and spaceship engineering <laughs> yeah. on the other maybe but like um but in terms of where the border is I'm not I'm not sure like I I used to think for instance that education was especially higher education was was totally on the brain surgery side that you just want the best people and it doesn't really matter but I've you know been reading some reports I mean, I'll I'll tell you about this when we're off air. I'm not going (laughs) to. I'm not going to say this loud, but let's just say I've I've seen information recently that has been quite disturbing on that score. That you know, in many humanities departments, um, the chances that a a boy will fail uh, class is three times more likely if his teacher is a woman as a a teacher is a man. And I've I've read a lot of credible uh, accounts that you know in if your teacher if you if, if you're a member of a minority group and your teacher is a member of the same minority group you are uh, significantly more likely to do well in that class and to to be engaged and to learn more and even down to dialect so if you speak a particular dialect or you have a particular accent so i don't know let's say you're like a new yorker you got like a thick new york accent Um, kids in your class who are native born New Yorkers will on average do better in a class where the person not only, you know, speaks English with the same accent as them. So uh, there's all these ways in which it seems like the identity of the person providing the service uh, can actually sometimes decide to some extent. So like Indigenous students who have an indigenous teacher um, will often do better. You know, being and all other things being equal. Like the teachers are just as good,
1: they're covering the material just as just as well. So I think there's a whole wealth of questions about why that's going on. I mean, it, you, the immediate assumption would be there's some sort of a bias that the teacher is favoring someone of his own kind. But it could be something simpler. They just communicate a little bit better or something like you don't know, like when there's an oral evaluation, maybe they cannot. It could be a number of different explanations for that that would not necessarily be sort of venal, right? That might actually be just sort of more mundane. You know, I don't know. That's a great, that would be. Something that would be an incredible area to study, and I, there's something else I would tell you off air as well. Just something <laughs> next to that, it's not something i I'd, I'd...
0: <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But anyway, thank you so much, and let's just okay. let's just sort of say now we're gonna we're gonna have a, a Thomas Soul Part Two <laughs> uh, sometime in the near future, and then we'll have another sure. episode on that. But all right, well, thank you very much, and um, I will talk to you soon. The pleasure, John.